Oh, I'm just gonna eat. It's gonna be the sound of chewing for two hours. Oh, we are cracking into the sprats. Riga Gold brand. Yeah, it's called the Riga's Gold. The Riga's Gold Sprat. All these Baltic countries used to be a thing, uh, part of the Hansa League. And it's just a bunch of Germanic traders, and they were just trading in sprats, basically. Just carrying sprats back and forth. Just putting it in each other's mouth. Years of proud tradition, eating sprats with Ilya Schwartz. This is a, it's a can of, of sprats each? <laughs> Holy crap. How, how decadent. <laughs> You're gonna be spratted out. It used to be that you could only get sprats at your local Honest Ed's, but now they're everywhere. Oh, it's because it's a Polish neighborhood, they know. Polish people understand. Did you know that like Poland's basically reunified with Lithuania into a military union? It's Just like a, today? No, like the other day, because they're scared of Russia, right? Uh, oh, so they, man. like... Po Poland, Lithuania used to be a huge fucking country. They, like, conquered half of Russia, and they owned, like, some European places. They were, like, big. Why are they freaking out? They think that they're the next on the hit list after Ukraine? Yeah, but nobody wants them. I don't know why they think that. It's, it's kind of stupid. It's just an excuse, really. What is this uh, fine dark bread that you're slicing into? This is Borodinsky. What's this is, like, the best Russian bread ever. It's oh made out of rye. God. It smells like... God. Oh, man. Yeah, so you can I'm, put a Sprite on I'm it. I'm getting rigid. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, super soft. Where did you get it? And uh, my dad got it from Yummy Market. It's this disgusting store on Dufferin. And you also got Atch, Atchva it's Vanilla Sesame... It's Halva. Halva. It, you know what Halva is? No. It's, um, it's basically sesame seeds that are completely pressed together and mixed with, like, sugary stuff. Here, try it. Oh, plus glucose, sugar, vegetable oil, natural spice. Are we just gonna eat with my, our hands? I think we need forks for this, Brad. Oh, shit. Jessica Gordon! Can we have a couple of forks, please, and some plates? And come, come have a Sprat. I feel guilty eating and, all the Sprats. Yes, the young lady needs a Sprat. You need to eat. increase your mercury blood levels. <laughs> really? That's <laughs> Slightly. Important. Yeah, I think that there's there's uh, trace elements of toxic It's probably uranium metal. and these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, glorious. Just try it. Do it. This is truly a fine homecoming. So did it rain the whole time you were in jolly old England? No. As I was saying. Get in well, real close to that microphone there. It's like... It it's gonna smell like sprats, though. Oh, it's fine. Everybody's gonna be like, what is this delightful musk? There needs to be a legacy of stink from every person here, who uses here. it. Do it. Take it all in one bite. Yeah, just put it and do it. It's good! <laughs> As she tosses it back on the plate. Yeah, that's funny. She says she's GGG, but when it comes to slightly toxic fish, who won't eat it? From Eastern Europe. <laughs> you remember I told you about ocean peas? No. It used to be it used to be my favorite food when I was little. My dad would buy this thing called ocean paste, mm -hmm. and it was bright nuclear orange colored paste, and it was in a can, mm -hmm. and nobody knew what it was. And then eventually, the whole thing was cancelled, because apparently it was causing brain cancer. Oh. But it was the most delicious paste I've ever had. If, like, as far as pastes go... Was it was... some sort of, like, spam-type product, where they ground up yeah. other things and, and put it into a, a pink slime, and and then you were supposed to add it for protein value to other things? But... You were not supposed to... It was a spread. 
<laughs> but people just ate it with a spoon. They would take it camping and they would just eat ocean paste like near the fire, like a cave person, except yeah. with a can of... Were spreads always popular or is it kind of a post-war type of thing? There seemed to be like a boom of, of various like food spreads that every culture would have that's slowly dying off. I don't, I don't think spreads are an Asian thing. No. I don't know any Asian spreads. What's an Asian spread? Uh, they got what? They got... Um, what's that? Soy paste shit. Um, oh, like natto? Miso. Oh, miso. Yeah, Miso's miso. not a spread, though. You put it in the food here. Yeah, you put it in. It's like a seasoning, almost. Yeah, it is a seasoning. It's, yeah. it's like actually a seasoning. That's why you put it in soup and shit. So it's similar to that pink slime stuff that the internet was obsessed with for a couple of weeks? I guess so. And byproduct? I don't understand why people give um, industrial byproduct food manufacturers a hard time about things like pink slime. To me, it's keeping alive that proud Native American tradition where you use every single part of the animal. Or there not is, an animal. It doesn't no matter if it's an animal or not. As long as it's edible, it gives you some sort of a nu nutrients in there. Like, honestly, like, how are we so decadent that we're throwing perfectly good foodstuffs out just because yeah. it's, you know, maybe toxic, possibly? Mm -hmm. But like, and think of how selfish the vegetarians are, that they're wasting all this good protein. They're not going to consume the animals. They'd rather just see it turn to dirt. Come on all now. These, and all these weird movements of, like, <laughs> different parts of animals from continent to continent. Yeah. Like, the United States is, like, the biggest exporter of, like, pig feet to China. <laughs> so they have the Americans like, won't eat it. Yeah, they won't eat it, but the Chinese, like, love the pig feet. So mm -hmm. all the pig feet go there. It must be chicken. Same thing for chicken feet. Probably, yeah. It most likely. No, no, no. I like all of. I like all the body parts of the animal. I would just eat them. Yeah, me too. I, chicken feet are a little weird in that I don't. There's not much meat. It's kind of like a large, fat pad, and and kind of a goopy skin. What are these things called? Um, the things that, like, not bone, not quite bones. Cartilage. Yeah, cartilage. Mm. Cartilage is great. <laughs> you open up a restaurant that's all cartilage. Yeah, I have that. The fucking Black Hoof had, like, bone marrow, right? Like, yeah. bone marrow stuff that used to be popular. Mm -hmm. I think it stopped being popular now because it's kind of... It's not actually not that tasty. Like, it's super rich. Yeah. And uh, you get into these patterns where, uh, at first, people decide to make something like oxtail. Mm -hmm. the, kale, the tail of the cow, cheapest cut you can buy in the butcher shop. They're like, we're going to turn this into a delicacy by preparing it right. Yeah. And then, suddenly, over time, the prices go up ridiculous amount and then oxtail's not a cheap cut anymore and the the cooks need to find a new trick yeah. jesus christ you're devouring those sprats you don't understand <laughs> this is nostalgia in a can did they not have sprats in jolly old england well they have sprats i lived between um okay so my house by the way yeah so i was telling you that last week my house's roof got destroyed no by... i didn't hear the whole story you just said that you were living in a hotel yeah so I was sitting down and stuff, and then the light bulb, like, turned into a shower head. Water started spraying out of the light bulb? Yeah. So me and my, like, roommate, we were carrying, like, buckets of, like, rainwater out <laughs> until the rain stopped, and then um, the entrance collapsed. The whole roof fell in. The roof and the entrance to the house collapsed. Wow. And then we were like, and then we turned the electricity back on, and it was like making this weird buzzing noise that mm -hmm. you know that, like, things are going to burn soon. Mm -hmm. So we uh, we called our landlord and we're like, we can't stay here. It's possibly unsafe. 
So what, are they, what kind of building is this? Is it like a tenement building? Is it yeah. like rent controlled or something? So you know how like you think here and you see all these like nice Victorian buildings, you think they're great. They're kind of awful over there. It's like they're everywhere, mm-hmm. and like I started filtering them out because I used to think this is like oh this is like nice English bricks. It looks mm-hmm. cool, like old timey. They have no like their infrastructure is also very old timey. Right. So there's um there's just boxes with shitty like rotten roof things and just they don't work very well and everybody and also like a lot of the like cheap apartments which is what we kind of can't afford because england's expensive as fuck Mm -hmm. they're on top of like stores and those are like extra rotten right so yeah like which just showers an electric shower it heats itself and there's a separate boiler that makes a noise like a dying tank oh gross yeah it's all very strange oh we should have the kefir spread What's the kefir? It's pressed. It's pressured kefir. They take kefir and then they like pressurize it until it looks like uh, you know, like those the like the locks spread, kind of like a cream com- cheese. Oh right, it's like so. That's why the yogurt. bread exists. Yeah, so it's, but it's yogurt cream cheese. Ah, so it's possibly healthy. I'm. I don't know. I don't care if it's healthy. Honestly, whatever. I can. I can be healthy without it. <laughs> you deserve to give yourself a present after your long trip. Yeah. Oh my god. And. Don't get me wrong, London's like amazing, mm-hmm. right? But like the standard of living is totally different. You have to make a huge mental adjustment. How do you mean? Well, you just have to realize that like the space you have here and how like you you stick your head out and you see all the people and there you see like maybe four people on the street here. Over there it'd be like 75 and um the space available for the amount of money that you have available is a... It's like a different equation. Right. So everything is a little bit more cramped. Not a little bit. Like, for the first half a year, we lived with nine roommates. Hmm. And All sharing the same kitchen and shit? And it was the same price as, like... The room was the same price as the, our, part, our apartment here, like, on, like, Young College. Like, $1,200 or something? Yeah, more. Jesus. And it was just for a t- room that's, like, as big as this, for two people. What? So, uh, so if you move in with Cameron, you're going to be living high on the hog. Yeah, that's that's what. It, <laughs> like, honestly, we're staying in this like amazing castle, like next to Bellwoods, where our friends who are like visiting England mm-hmm. conveniently oh. right now. So uh, we can swap apartments if you'd like. Yeah, I, I was I, I suggested that, but luckily they decided not to because otherwise, yeah, they would have no roof. It's uh, yeah. Ilya Schwartz, can we talk? <laughs> the just... roof collapsed. Here. Have the mm. creams. Oh my god. Compressed I'm going to drink all the, all the oil, all the fish oil. I'm just going <laughs> to rub it into my pores and absorb it right into my body. So do you feel like you understand the British culture a lot better, having been there through like osmosis and stuff? I'm starting to. I think, like, I think we were talking before... And I moved, like, several times in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And one year is just enough to start becoming comfortable. Right. Like, first half a year, it was shit. And I knew it was going to be shit. Because mm-hmm. we didn't know where to stay. Our apartment was garbage. We lived with, like, five Italian dudes that, like, ran away from home. No control. There was no control over the situation, right? And eventually, I had a couple of jobs. And then I found, like, a source of income. And then uh, Lisa kind of started getting into her school more. And we started figuring out where to go and what to do and how to get shit. And in, a little bit later, like at nine, ten months, you start understanding the mentality of like how people talk to each other. 
and like really weird cultural quirks. Like when they say like a thing, I would start understanding the reference they're making to like some TV show four years ago, right? Oh, okay, that's specific. Well, but that's important, right? Because mm-hmm. then the guy is like saying, "Oh, he's like you know, like bloody blah 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 blah," and you just like stare at them. You just say, "Oh yeah, that's cool. That's okay. You're right. I I understood what you they're, said, and then you didn't understand anything they name said." Name dropping like obscure Coronation Street characters. And well, things. not even that. <laughs> like yeah, but like something like that, mm-hmm. right? Like a, you know, oh, remember when that tube station was being fixed for two years? Okay, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, and then, um, but the, the, they're still really close to like they speak the same language, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not that different. Yeah, it's uh, it's slightly different. Like uh, uh, like okay, so London's like Great London area is fifteen million people. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot more competition, right? And it's not really like it's like a separate entity within Britain. Because it, it's treated separately, and it has, like, uh, a different type of people living there. Right. Everyone's really, really hustling. Mm-hmm. So uh, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure people in New York feel the same, right? Right. So, like, if you... So the lows would be really low, right? But when you get, like, lots of money and you have two incomes, mm-hmm. then you're, like, riding a beautiful horse into the sunset. <laughs> And is so, there any fear of, um, like, are there ghetto-type areas where you can't go? Oh, yeah, I was beat almost and... beat up the other day. <laughs> I was going to tell you that story. So I was, like, I was buying, like, chicken because uh, that's a nationally, like, English food. It's fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so is it is in China as well. It's oh, yeah? KFC's taken over. It's not KFC. Mm-hmm. They have, like, all these different names, like, perfect fried chicken, country-style fr- fried chicken, country-country fried chicken special chicken fried chicken and you're just like and they're all like halal fried chicken places by like these pakistani dudes that are just like opening fried chicken places everywhere and they all have the same logo with like slightly different different variations it's like a chicken biting its own wing and looking happy you know like suicide food food that wants to be eaten Mm -hmm. yeah so uh so i was buying that and they're like five giant like fat like dudes just I don't know what they were doing. They were just like hanging out and licking each other. I don't know. <laughs> Getting chicken blobs off the wherever chicken blobs come from. So and I nudged one of their bikes and I was like, Oh I'm sorry and I just keep walking. And I'm walking and I'm walking and one of these like fat dudes runs behind me and he just like catches me by the neck like a like an animal and he's like Rah! Jesus. You fucking see what you did, you fool And he like called me fool and I was yeah. I was like, what? What happened? I, I'm like stunned. I'm like, I don't, mm-hmm. know, I don't know what to do with you. And I have to mention that I live in Stratford. And according to like the, you know, those um, energy maps that you see on like the police websites. Mm-hmm. And that's like, it goes like from red to blue and red is the murderiest area. <laughs> you cross the boundary. So the Stratford area is the murderiest area in, in London, right? Yeah. And um, all these dudes are like, they have knives because there's no guns there. <laughs> but knives are like... To me, they're way more intimidating because with yeah. a gun, they can just shoot me and I'll be dead. And we have but no experience an... with actual firearms going off near us. So when you, when I see a gun, I immediately think, oh, it must be a starter pistol or a toy or a, a, a pellet gun. I don't associate near murder. No, I think <laughs> guns are murder weapons. Like, I'm not, I'm not, 
deceiving myself. I think if somebody has a gun and it looks like a gun, I'm going to stay away from them. Mm-hmm. But if somebody has a knife and they're like like a huge person and they have like five of their buddies there ready to like destroy your ribs. Right. You're like, it's different, right? Because yeah. being stabbed is painful. Personal. And you feel like... You're gonna bleed out. That's I, like dying if I'm in a war. Empathizing with the criminal, I feel like he's more likely to stab you than he is to shoot you. Well, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I was like, I'm really sorry I touched your bike. I'm really, really sorry. I don't want to fight you. <laughs> and you I'm give, like, him, give him the dreamy eyes. Well, no, I was like, I understand you're bored, but like, I just want to go home and eat my chicken. <laughs> And then he looked at his chicken, and then he looked at your bucket of chicken. And he just said, fool! <laughs> and then I left. It's surprising how easy it can be sometimes, eh? Like, because it takes two to fight. Yeah, and... so Oh, thank you. Just to you. It takes two to fight, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know how sometimes you'll have a bruiser friend you went to college with, oh. and every time they go someplace... They always find trouble. I think it's like a Western thing. Because I don't ever want to fight. Like, if you fight... Like, I used to fight in, like... When I lived in the Middle East, I used to fight, like, the... Like, the different type of kids. They were just fighting. Mm-hmm. And, like, being beat up sucks. Oh, yeah, scary. And, like... So, I do, like... I don't want to, like, humiliate myself, but I try and get away from it if mm-hmm. I can. I'll, like, run away. I'll kick them in the crotch and run away. <laughs> I'll just, like... <laughs> because, like, there you can, like, legitimately evaluate your chances when you're there. And if there's, like, five huge, like, Indian dudes with knives around me and they're all upset that I touched one of their bicycles... And they're all, like, 18, so they're full of energy. And they just want to, like... They want to get with girls, really. They don't want to fight me. They want to have girlfriends. But, no, I'm, like... I'm going to relieve some of the tension if they beat me up. So, Alan Moore had uh, a series of pornographic comic books that he wrote with his wife. And that was the main theme of uh, the Lost Girls stuff. Uh, Yeah, really? I didn't read it. It was, like, all of the men have gone off to fight World War one i think mm-hmm. and the women are left at home to have to have um various sexual escapades and explore their lesbian tendencies and things is that what happened erotic comics i'm thinking in particular of a book called lost girls which uh, explored the the sexual fantasies of three figures from children's literature alice dorothy from the wizard of oz uh, wendy from peter pan you you put them in very sexually explicit scenes in your book. What was your thinking behind this? Were, were you just trying to shock? Not at all. No, the original thinking behind Lost Girls when uh, me and the artist, Melinda Gebby, who has since become my lovely wife, uh, we were originally thinking that it seemed a bit strange that almost every other subject in the human world is considered fit for writing literature about or creating art um, around. Whereas sex and sexuality, which is something which concerns all of us, the only genre which talks about it is this fairly despicable, under-the-counter genre that has absolutely no standards. But these are, these are characters that, that you plucked out of children's literature. Mm-hmm. I think that is what is some of the shock in this and also you put them in positions that are incestuous you show 
children as young as 14 having sex. So it, it's not just a celebration of sex. It's, no. it's also really pushing the boundaries of what is deemed to be acceptable. Well, this is it. We wanted to do a piece of pornography that was pornography in the traditional sense, but which addressed all of the problems that people have with pornography, particularly the feminist problems. And uh, it, so his main uh, theme throughout that thing is that um, when it comes to militarism, when it comes to the warrior mentality, that's the corrupted male sexual impulse. Like, whatever part of the brain is responsible for that murderous conquering is also the part of the brain that's supposed to be occupied by sex. I don't think it's corrupted. I think we're meant to be that way. Oh, but what Alan Moore is saying is it's kind of like that chimpanzee versus bonobo type of divide, right? Like, if humans, human men are having sex a lot, their orgasms deflate that rage and that anxiety. Like, they get dopey and, and less aggressive as soon as they come. And when, like you were yeah, describing yeah, yeah. No, those teenagers, the, yeah, right? Totally. Like, when they don't have girls around... And they're just themselves. They get violent. They start acting out and yeah, bored and aggressive. Yep. But yeah, totally. It's a just a it's a release of a sexual impulse through your fist. Mm-hmm. You know. I went up to uh, I had like a camping slash whitewater rafting trip that I went on with my friend who's a personal trainer, and uh, he brought all these other personal trainers up to the, the lake, and there was like controversy between our camp and a neighboring camp. Mm -hmm. And I thought that there was going to be, you know, a multi-person uh, brawl at some point during the trip, right? Because uh -huh. they'd keep on making eyes at one another whenever we would pass by the camp. Mm -hmm. And um, so it got into somebody's head that the best way to um, escalate things would be to do a midnight raid. What? And so um, my friends my in, my kind of semi friends that like I a warcraft raid with, what, what they decided to go over and um grab some beer uh -huh. and some other personal items from like the tent next door while the other guys were out walking around and they came back from the raid holding a blow-up sex doll over their head and they're dancing around in the darkness around the campfire like pretending to like molest this blow-up sex doll and nobody wow. realizes that there's fucking semen all over this thing, oh. <laughs> right? Until I point it out. I'm just, like, sitting with the the ladies. Uh-huh. Kind of, uh, like, they were the girlfriends of the guys, so I couldn't really chat up them. But I was just kind of empathizing with them because they were bored and they wanted attention, but the, the bros wanted to hang out with one another. Wow. So we're all sitting, me and, like, four bored girlfriends are watching... These bros dance around with this semen-colored blow-up doll, and it was very surreal. That's surreal. And it kind of made yeah. me. It made me. Um, I had like an intervention, kind of, where I was like, instead of fighting these guys, like, why don't we hang out with the girls and go over to the the thing and, you know, try Explore to have a dance nature. party or something? Isn't that more fun? But there's always this this kind of 50/50 thing with with uh, really high testosterone bro dudes is like the violence is just as interesting as the sex stuff more interesting actually if you're given a well choice between that and a girlfriend disassembling a human is probably an interesting thing but yeah gives you a thrill sure 
So that was a close call. Did you get to go in any football games while you were over there? No, I'm going to go next month, I think. Mm -hmm. West Ham United. That's my neighborhood team. They're terrible. It's great. Are you going to wear the colors? No. (laughs) Oh, man. Dude, like yesterday, I was going, me and Lisa were going home from that, yeah, from a wedding we attended. And we saw these, like, very Russian Toronto FC supporters, and they were very drunk. And, yeah. and they were yelling, like, ole, 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 with, like, a heavy Russian accent. And, like, they were scaring, like, all the TTC passengers. It was interesting. And, we're, and then in be- between themselves, they were talking how much they hate gays and how much they want to join. <laughs> and one of them joined the Mormon church for some reason. And he was saying how it, like, cleared his mind and how finding God is really making him uh, a better person. So that was that was very interesting. He's like, what you need to understand is that there is a great a trinity throughout the universe that consists of hating gays, Mormonism, and Toronto FC football. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So many Russian oligarchs in London, too. And they have, like, these creepy trophy, trophy wives that are dressed in, like, beaver pelts and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're all... They're not scary. So is it, are you witnessing, like, why are the oligarchs in London? Is it starting to become a multipolar thing where, like, you're the boss of a certain country, but you don't live there? A lot of foreigners fetishize London. Yeah. Like the Japanese, they kind of fetishize uh, Paris. Mm-hmm. There's even this thing called the, the Paris syndrome, okay. where, like, a Japanese person comes to Paris and they're so disappointed they get sick. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, it's all like, uh, everyone smokes. The subway smells like urine. Nobody's paying attention to you. <laughs> and they think it's like, you know, like a Dumopa something. They know. thought it was going to be a Shangri-La yeah. paradise. It was like a beautiful uh, Disneyland castles with like princesses everywhere. Is stuff. it true that the dogs are allowed to shit on the sidewalk in Paris? I don't know. I heard that. I know in Eastern Europe, nobody cares. So they just leave it there. Oh, God, nobody picks filthy. it up. filthy. No, it's a, it's okay. Oh man, I hate it. Every every time I step in dog shit, it's it's happened twice this year. I can smell it on my shoes that's, as I'm walking through the city. That's what it's for. It's so that the dogs can recognize that you stepped in it and you're part of their family. Now. You can't get it off. You have to wash your shoes in order to get yeah. it off the residue. Yeah. God damn it. That's yeah. That's that's what it's for. It's for marking territory. They marked you. So the oligarchs they fetishize London and then they come. They buy all the houses in the center. And that's why the real estate prices, it's, it kind of happened in Vancouver a little bit. Like all these Chinese businessmen bought all these condos and the prices, nobody else can afford them anymore, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like it raised the prices really high. So all these like Arab, like Saudi Arabian and like Arab Emirati businessmen, they're buying all these properties in London. So like an average house there costs like a million pounds now. And it's just impossible for anyone who really wants to buy a house in London to live there. Scoot your chair a little closer. No. Ooh. I'm afraid I'm going to get sprats all over your microphone. Don't worry about it. I can always change the the the, the, the foam thing on there is like $2. The foamy micro condom <laughs> thing. Blah. Yeah, so, um, but I don't know. Like, people are, people get really upset about gentrification, and I don't understand why. Mm-hmm. This has happened for years and years and years, right? Like, artists move into a neighborhood, and it's a terrible neighborhood. There's, like, crack whores, and people are, like, beating each other up everywhere. And then the artists move in there because they can't afford anything, and mm-hmm. they make it better, and their friends move in. 
and eventually it becomes better enough so that people want to have like kids there and they buy houses and apartments and then it becomes super gentrified and there's like Starbucks everywhere and stuff and, and the artists you're... are priced out so they move into a different neighborhood that's also crappy and make it better and eventually the neighborhood with the you forgot the you vinyl know, tier where the city gets some clout it ends up on world's best lists on Forbes oh, and yeah. then the oligarchs want to move there oh yeah that too but then it doesn't <laughs> matter because the people will move somewhere else right it happened to London too at first it was like the cool area was Soho mm-hmm. and now it's just expensive restaurants and like a minor amount of hookers and then then people moved to Shoreditch, and now Shoreditch is like this weird Kensington market thing where nobody can afford to live, but mm-hmm. it's like a tourist spot. And then people moved to like Camden and Hackney and Dalston and like further and further away. Mm-hmm. I'm name-dropping neighborhoods because I finally learned their names. <laughs> but yeah, um, it doesn't – like gentrification's great. Mm-hmm. Like I don't see any problem with it. And then eventually, you know, it, it – areas become dilapidated again and then artists can move in yeah you do end up risking having like a cultural dead zone and then the rich people moving out and you end up with closed with stores out yeah kind of condo land and then they turn into lofts and then right. people move then back it goes in around in a circle again yeah. i think that the thing that's happening in toronto is that artists are being pushed out of downtown but nobody wants to live in scarborough so there's more and more people that are thinking about making the jump to Hamilton, which yeah. still has like kind of the urban vibe, but it's got cheaper human size houses and that's the one thing that I think European cities do better. Yeah. They have neighborhoods that are like little cities. Mm-hmm. Like they have uh, that also took me a while to understand like there's like all these like high street things. Like it's like a main street kind of thing. And it's a, and every neighborhood has like a central street. There's a subway station there. And then uh there's like a main street with all the chicken stores and like the supermarkets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then around it, and it's like a core, right? And then yeah. around it, there's other stuff mm-hmm. like living houses and pools and schools. And Toronto's whatever. like that. Roncesville no, not is like that. Well, Roncesville is a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. But mostly like North American cities are grid based, right? There's a downtown area, and yeah. that's, where sh- like, that's where stuff is, right? Mm-hmm. And then it goes out and out and out, and then it suburbifies, right? But I've noticed that like, in London, like, the suburbs are their own thing, right? There's really cool suburbs. And you just go there, and there's, like, really nice pubs and stuff. And, uh, like, that. that's where that high street thing comes in handy, right? Because it's, like, a center. And then it could be, you know... Like, that, that way you can um, you can have lots of centers in your city, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just one. Mm-hmm. It's like, Toronto is, like... It has a couple of centers. Like, it has, uh, like, Ronsonfels on one side, and it has the beach. The yeah. beaches on the other side. But... Uh, it's not nearly that as many, right? And it could have like more. Like yeah, it will be building up. Like uh, there's Eglinton, city. right? But um, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I just don't understand why like Markham doesn't have something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like instead, it has a Pacific Mall. It's kind of weird. Strange things happen when you have car culture that's spreading everything out, right? You have um, a lot of cool things that would have been better if they had been consolidated into the same mixed-use area. You know, like you go up into North Toronto and or Mississauga, and it's everything is is way spread out, and so you get these like room for for empty lots and just naked lawns and. But it doesn't have to be spread out if you have cars, though. Like, you can have a center with a car and just drive far away to work. But there's always a temptation if you're built, you're buying land. You don't have to make any consider or any um. You don't have to make any plans that fit in with the existing neighborhood. 
there's always another vacant lot that's just a few hundred yards farther away that you can buy and build from scratch. Yeah, that's just bad urban planning, though. So you end up with kind of a, you know how like when you're first playing Monopoly, you, you set up, you buy all these tracts of land and put like one house on them all across the board, and then it takes a while for yeah, it you to play turn into build up. SimCity, right? Or SimCity. Mm-hmm. And you just designate the zones, there's like commercial zone and yeah. industrial zone, and it just grows out of it. Mm-hmm. But I think the other funny thing that's happening is that because um, because people are homesteading, and going out to these vacant lots that they can get for cheap and putting up houses, um, they apply their frugalness to the construction of the things that they're putting up. So, like, the big box stores that they build out in the suburbs are just, you know, tin roof sheeting and um, girders. And the houses, the cookie-cutter houses that they build are really shoddily created. So it's like nobody involved is is really taking it seriously that this is a permanent neighborhood that is going to be here and we're going to try to build it for the next 2000 years. Oh, no. It's kind of like temporary. Everything is out there is temporary. Obsolescence, like, Didn't right. they don't they have a similar situation in Paris where like the surrounding areas outside Paris are kind of like a, a suburban area that they are not putting as much investment into keeping the roads paved and stuff, and it's kind of become a slum for brown people. Immigrants, yeah. It happens everywhere. Europeans hate immigrants, even though there's a lot of immigrants everywhere. Yeah. Like, I don't know. They have All, all, all the countries have, like, crazy right-wing parties that are doing stuff. They hate immigrants. They hate... They still hate the Jews there. Like, they hate everyone. It's... it's uh, there's a lot of history of, like, different types of hate. Yeah. Do you think it goes... And the immigrants hate, like... All kinds of other people. Right. Do you think yeah. it goes hand in hand with like natu- nationalism? Like they can't really be proud Brits unless they can distinctify themselves. And because yeah. I never see like I don't have a whole lot of nationalism in me. Mm-hmm. And so when I see people from other cultures celebrating it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And and because I don't think on those topics very often, I have a hard time. Um, you know, having prejudice towards somebody for their background or whatever, because I think it's all just make believe. Or you know, I don't, I don't see anything about being from Pakistani descent that's any more interesting or important to me than being a fan of the New York Yankees. It just seems like cultural kind of thing that different humans. Well, yeah, people belong to different clubs, right? They, they're all in different clubs. I don't see anything like reverent about it. Like some people think of their cultural background oh, as being like. One of the most important parts of me as a human I can't, I can't is that, that I am from Scotland, or I am from Etobicoke. <laughs> this is this is this is what you need to know about I me. I guess people I'm... need to define themselves by some standard, right? Mm-hmm. And then they just find, okay, I guess I was born on the corner of uh, this street and another street. Yeah, so I'm from there. But I think people from Toronto, hipster people from Toronto, it's it's more like you want to be defined by the stuff you make. Um, stuff like that. I don't know. There is Canadian pride, but right. it's harmless because it doesn't. Um, there's not much you can do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like American pride's weird because um, they got they have, nukes. Yeah, they have nukes and they have soldiers and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But Canadian pride's okay. Well, you're proud. You're proud to have beavers in your country. That's okay. Racism, genocide, all sorts of other things in their track record that makes you go like, oh, maybe they could become Nazis. Not it's always weird, like, when you're listening, like, Lisa was listening to, like, a Stephen Colbert interview on Fresh Air, and he's like, I'm so proud to be an American! It is the best 
bestest best country in the world and she's like i don't like him anymore <laughs> <laughs> and like every time like they like they show one of these things they go like oh we, we really support our troops they're the best people that we've ever seen in mm -hmm. our lives and they're protecting us over there so we can live well over here have you seen starship troopers lately oh yeah, yeah it's uh you know nazis nazi space soldiers are fighting nazi bugs totally okay. but because <laughs> they remove all the iconography you can totally see the parallels to them and the, and the americans because they have a, a warped political system where you're not considered a citizen unless you've had military service Really and if creepy. you look what is kind of subtly going on, even among the Democrats, it's like they want to they're OK with um, social programs to give people free college. But you have to be a, a former soldier in order to apply. For it, it weirds me. They're that OK with like national health care, but you have to be a former soldier. So all of the, th the things that mark like being a benefit for being a citizen, it's associated with military service. And but the thing that military conquering. service people are people who like. Either they failed at everything else and they just can, like, be of use just based on their physical ability to kill other people. So it's like celebrating potential murders. They also are patriotic. They can be patriotic people who are just from a family of... Yeah, that's the other one. Mm -hmm. So they, they've devoted their lives to be professional murderers. <laughs> like, why are they better than a person who's, like, a plumber? Like, they're worse. Or a poet. Or, or a poet, blank. or, like, you know, yeah, anything. lots of different ways to spend your time. Oh, oh, oh my God. JRG with the coffee. It's, I've got my famous time-to-get-things-done like done mug. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. the fact that I work That's seven amazing. days a week. You sure you didn't want any more sprats? <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of sprats, Jessica. We're gonna, we'll, wrap, we'll wrap yours up. That's glorious coffee. Mm-hmm. I got an arrow press. But yeah, it, what, what's what's interesting about the American mm. experience, though, is like you can't really appreciate it unless you get inside that bubble and live there for a while. Man. Fox News is abhorrent to everybody outside the bubble, but it makes a little bit more sense when you get in there and you start seeing the American flag on every fucking thing and the hysteria that happens over the 4th of July and the kind of reverency they have around the presidency, even though they disagree with whoever it's is just, holding it's it It's just simple time. propaganda, though. That's mm -hmm. been happening forever. I'm sure, like, uh, Roman consul, consuls used to, like, whip up their, you know, the mob. Yeah. It's like, you got to serve Rome and be a citizen, you know, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So uh, they probably had the same kind of propaganda going on, right? If you, if you have nothing to be to attach your personality to except for pride of where you were born and like what club you belong to then uh kind of sad well it's kind of sad but also it kind of if you don't think about where you belong to it's very hard to define yourself right, right. like when you think about yourself as a person like where like you think where are you from who, who gave birth to you mm -hmm. where did you grow up like mm -hmm. and who are your friends and usually it'll be kind of like a homogenous kind of blob of human culture yeah. that you're in so I feel like it, it's hard to not almost have that. every major all of the important work all of the important building happened to me in college i was a boring nerdy suburban kid until i got to college and everything got kind of escalated and i learned more about the world and about different points of view and what i sh should be reading and all sorts of I things think people evolve when they're uncomfortable mm -hmm. so they when they leave like an environment that they're comfortable in and they just like i kind of try to do that just like once in a while if i'm like a, 
I sort of failed the last time. I stayed like at my job for five years, and it was way too long. Mm-hmm. But then eventually, like I managed to get out, and then it's like it 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 upgrade, upgrades your brain. It like gives it like this weird nudge. Yeah. And then you start processing the world a little bit differently, just because you put yourself in a different situations. No sharpness without friction. You have to, you have to make yourself suffer because like there's a, there's there's this thing where like a lot of people like I don't know I like sometimes I think that like like kind of the meaning of life is to make yourself happy, mm-hmm. but that's really not it at all. No, like making yourself happy is boring because mm-hmm. I can make myself happy just by eating sprats all day, mm-hmm. and then I'll be fat and happy, and then mm-hmm. I'll die from a heart attack, and I'll be super happy. Mm-hmm. But it's just well, not even you. You reach peak happiness, and then it stops paying off. Well, hopefully, I'll have a heart attack right there and so, sick, yeah. and you can't move around. And then it's almost like a drug when you're when you're having rich, sugary food. It stops giving you that buzz after a while if you get it all the time, and then you start just being uncomfortable when you don't have it. Well, you know, you can always have heroin. <laughs> The you end just point. Fall, fall asleep. But I think what happens to junkies for heroin is they realize there's no no higher mountain. <laughs> they can only just have more heroin until yeah. and they they, they just uh, go in right into nirvana. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, you know if you play Warcraft all the time or like one of those those other games and you realize that like the interactions that you're getting from the game are better than the interactions you're getting from like other people in like real life. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I have a feeling that if I tried it really hard, like, I would just keep playing. It would just never go away, and I would just be there. You'd get lost in the vortex? Yeah. Just, uh, fuse into the world of, uh, other people's, uh, electrical... But I feel like you've always had an appreciation for the physical. Like, you do appreciate what exercise does to your mood and stuff like that. I understand it. Mm-hmm. I hate exercising. Everybody does. But it makes you feel good afterwards. Yeah, kinda. It takes a long time to make you feel good afterwards. Yeah. And then you realize that you're just like, oh my god, I had to work so hard to feel a little bit better, and you stop exercising for another month, mm-hmm. and you start again because you have guilt. Mm-hmm. It's all an exercise in managing guilt. It's not really a physical thing. Mm-hmm. You just have to, like, uh, once your guilt reaches a certain level, like a boiling point, then you have to, like, alleviate it by punching it in the face. Yeah. And then... Um, it goes away for a bit, and then uh, and then you can like you go like okay, well I can have a little bit more guilt right now. I think it was Duncan Trussell was talking about the Buddhists. Um, certain Buddhists have a philosophy that you need to have an equivalent level of joy for the amount of pain that you have, or rather the other way around. Like you need to have an equivalent level of pain for how much joy you have in order to be a balanced person and to appreciate stuff. And I totally agree with yeah. that. Like I think that the uh, the highs don't make any sense unless there's struggle to 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 get to it. You know, it's a soft. failure of imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you if you can't get if you, if if you if you can't get upset about stuff, and if you can't if you can't make yourself uncomfortable, then the highs won't feel like the highs, right? They will just feel like regular stuff, and then it'll be boring. Mm-hmm. I've, it it yeah. You, you gotta you gotta break things once in a while. I get I get a a really clear um appreciation of that concept when it comes to digital content Mm -hmm. like there used to be a very strong anticipation when i would go to a video game store and you pay like 89 dollars for something and you've been waiting for it to come out for four months and you install it and you play it for 90 hours and you go like oh that was awesome and then that's your video game for the year yeah 
now that piracy is so easy and you can have access to all this like digital stuff for free immediately you end up like being able to just harvest the internet like a giant fishing net and you pull in all these albums and you listen to them for nine or ten minutes and you go like no i'm not feeling that or you installed you know the witcher or oh god have you tried that i I installed it and i played it for about five minutes and i was like that's what i did you know the learning curve where for the first couple hours you play a video game you're getting used to the interface so it's not fun it's just kind of frustrating and awkward yeah faced with the the daunting task of like keeping my attention when i could be watching youtube videos or working on podcast stuff or doing music video stuff it's like it's hard to over to surmount that like and I've, i've been my feeling about like a lot of that stuff I've been downloading is like the value goes way down, right? Like, yeah, because you don't appreciate it as much. You didn't pay for it, and it's there's lots more where that came from. I don't know. It's weird. I've tried paying for stuff that I think is good, and mm-hmm. then I like I uh, like I buy there's like those things called humble bundles, and you buy like ten games at once, mm-hmm. and you, you you pay like whatever you want, kind of, mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of how like a lot of Steam games make their money. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, you pay like ten bucks and you get ten games or whatever, and then uh, you play them all for five minutes each, and then you're done and you never open them again. Mm-hmm. It's you feel like you've spent your money on a valuable cause, like you supported somebody making games or whatever, like, mm-hmm. but you never open them again. And uh, I don't know if it's a failure of like the games are not engaging enough, or I'm just not, I'm just stupid to buy things that I don't really want, but. I don't think it's an accessibility thing. I think it's just the fact that... Um, I think, again, it's a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. I think those games are just not stimulating enough, honestly, for the world that where you can have everything. Right. It, I, I want to see something, like, truly original or mm-hmm. something that has, like, a story that's uh, sincere and it, like, touches me. Like, if you watch The Godfather for the first time, right, you're like, oh, my God, that is, like, a film. Yeah. Right? But if you play, I don't know, Mass Effect... You're like, oh, I've been talking to this blue woman, and now I can finally have sex with her. Click, click, <laughs> click. Okay, now let's go have sex with all the other women in this game mm-hmm. and collect all the little artifacts you can put in your cabin and like put stars on your uniform and stuff. Yeah, and I, how it, it, once you play one of those massive RPGs, the arc of the story is always the same. There's this building threat in the background that's going to... Um, put the world at risk and you need to build up your skills and weapons and then for the the final duel and then your team versus the thing and work together and you know i don't understand why they don't add a little bit more variety to these stories where i'm surprised that they're so risk averse right because it's not hard to create a story that's different than that there's tons of examples right Mm -hmm. it's just that they're like there's this group thing that takes over, even if it's like a small company. Mm-hmm. There's just like you have to keep like the three or four people happy, and then they just. Because I feel like yeah. it's totally backwards, um, in that if you watch any blockbuster movie, like if you compare, uh, say, the Dark Knight Rises versus the Dark Knight, or if you even just analyze just the Dark Knight, the reason that the Dark Knight has a, a third act that people don't really appreciate they don't really think it's interesting where the ferry boats are going to be blown blown up by the joker is that that's an extra personal conflict oh my god it's much more interesting and um moving for the audience to have an interpersonal conflict so 
the scenario where Harvey Dent has Rachel tied up onto gasoline barrels. He's got Batman's girlfriend and best fr- friend tied to gasoline barrels, and he's going to blow one of them up. That is much more intense than just random than having people random boat, people yeah. on a boat that nobody cares about and aren't in the story. Yeah. And I feel like the mistake that a lot of these role-playing games make is they automatically assume knee-jerk that the threat of the world being destroyed is more interesting than your best friend turning on you and becoming the villain. And it's not. Like, a lot of these games would, would be better served by just having interpersonal conflict between the characters where they want different things, and one of your main allies throughout the story decides to turn on you, and you have to make the decision, like, do you shoot Fredo and throw him off the boat and punish yeah. him for betraying you? Like, these interpersonal things are, are what stimulates people, I think. Yeah. I also think that, like... I agree that the stories are boring, but I also think that the gameplay is boring. And I think gameplay is, like, much a more important thing than story in games. Because sure. as a medium, games are interactive, right? And stories as a medium are very uninteractive. Mm-hmm. It's an author's thing, right? You, mm-hmm. like, you create the character and you move him through, like, trials and tribulations and then you have the resolution, right? Yep. But gameplay is, like... Essentially, it's, it's like, a puzzly kind of exercise, right? right? So, like, in Counter-Strike, you, like you use your reaction and you like notice something on the street on on a screen and you like click your mouse on it right mm-hmm. at the right time uh, so that's what's addictive really not the story that you're a world war 2 person like fighting like a german sniper that's hiding somewhere that's not what you're playing mm-hmm. if you wanted to do that you'd listen to a podcast or watch a film right so when those like big epic things come out and they have like a story that's terrible, I feel like it could be rectified if the gameplay was amazing. Right. But it really is not. It's like the same repetitive drivel. Yeah. Like run around, shoot things, move things in uh, rows of three so they would disappear off the screen. Mm-hmm. And uh, like cookie clicker, when you click on a button long enough until you have enough clicks. Yeah. It's just... Ugh. You and- think about... Um- some of the stuff who's the guy who wrote mario is the guy who created that uh, shigeru Miyamoto. he's he's an interesting example of the opposite of what you're describing because all of the the things that he built are the opposite it's like gameplay first and then any kind of like character or art direction you associate with it is just iconography that's used to distinguish different things and so you know that something is an obstacle something is a, a reward something is a goal but there's no there's no inherent logic that knits together anything in the Mario world. It's it's like he can get superpowers, he can grow. It's kind of like a Magritte painting. There's a MacGuffin that you gotta yeah. rescue at the end from I don't know a dragon. <laughs> it could be anything. It could be a toaster. It could be the homeless person that you see on the street every day. It doesn't actually matter, mm-hmm. right? The idea is to click at like certain intervals. That so would that, be an that amazing thing. Um, on that. that would be an amazing app to to create. Um, like a, a sprite generator. It's just random pixel art, pixel art that you can use to skin your game. Well, we sort and of it, wanted to do that, it completely. It, it's to avoid the impulse for for game designers to focus on art directions. Like, don't focus on art direction. Just use the sprite well, generator. And, I think mo- most game well, developers kind of do that already. Like, mm-hmm. they have temporary art before they build the game, and then they figure it out. It's just that also... But, I don't know. What I'm saying is also there's, like, a failure of imagination in the gameplay area. Mm-hmm. it's all the same kind of regurgitated things that they came up with in like 
the 80s and the 90s, mostly the 80s, really. Mm-hmm. Shoot things that come towards you. First-person shooter, platform games. Platformers. Uh, strategy, like cookie-clicker stuff, like Civ and Master of Orion and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, quest games, where you run around and read uh, text that's written by barely competent you find writers. Clues, then you got to find... You collect them, and then clues. you click on everything in your inventory on an object that doesn't work until something clicks. And it's like, oh, yeah, you do put the hamster in the microwave or whatever. They have a tentacle did, I forget. But Hey Tom. Thomas. It's just no. Uh I, I, I think things are starting to change because there's a lot of authorship in that world now. Like you can actually make a thing by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that usually solves everything because one person is much more interesting than three people. Yeah. Together. You can have uh you can tell personal stories and you can create personal types of gameplay that you just are just yours. Yeah. And then you can just test it on other people. So that stuff's getting better. But it's just like in its infancy, right? It's going to take like years and years until something really awesome comes up. I like hearing stories. You mentioned The Godfather earlier. I saw this interview between Coppola and Scorsese, and they were talking about like why there were so many good movies in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And Coppola was saying that it was totally a fluke. Like what, what they were benefiting from, they had large studios but had big pools of capital from um, previous successes, previous mm-hmm. successful movies. Days of and they, each of the studios had junior directors, upstart people who were interested in getting in the business that wanted to do little tiny movies for three, four, five million dollars. And the studios didn't have the infrastructure or the time to micromanage those directors. So... Coppola and Scorsese found that like they felt like they were they were hacking the system or like they had found a little little bag of of free money lying around and they very quickly put together movies before the studios could stop them and even like in Coppola's case he was being shadowed by a director that was going to be his replacement if he could get organized quickly enough and they were originally going to fire Al Pacino and hire Robert Redford, and they were going to turn The Godfather into a much more commercial thing. Mm, I remember that, actually, yeah. And so I wonder, like, when it comes to game development, whether we need a bit more of that financial pooling in order to get people the freedom that they can just, like, here's a bag of money, no expectations, do something personal. Because, like, I find that when I'm talking to my friends, people who are working in in the economy... Um, we can't help but have like the same kind of dialogue about our our projects that people who run companies do. We immediately think about like what's the financial angle, what's the marketing of this while we're building stuff, and it's hard to get people to just say, "What's your passion project? What do you actually want to see in the world? Don't worry about money. Don't worry about whether anybody will like it. What do you think should be built? You know?" And I think that that's where cool. Well, stuff you've done that too, right? Like for music videos, when you see uh, there's other stakeholders beside you, right? And you want to make them happy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I like I find myself less and less interested working for other people. It's just like I can I can make money on like I can always make money on the side, like doing whatever it is I'm qualified to do, mm-hmm. right? But if I'm gonna do uh, you know things that I actually like really want to do, just based on my skill set. Mm-hmm. I don't want other people involved. 
Like I want to, I want them to help me out, but I have no interest in what they're gonna say. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, like when I was doing that Nirvana pilot, mm-hmm. there were like what is it? Like thirty different people came in and they all like edited stuff and they talked to me and they were like, "Wouldn't it be funnier if the guy had a catchphrase?" And like, and I'm like, <laughs> "No." <laughs> And then they would discuss it for like half an hour, and I would just sit there wanting to shoot myself. Yeah. There's this, um, as soon as money is involved, group thinks comes in. And I think just like personal stuff that's that's just controlled by one, maybe two people is, it's a a higher risk, higher reward kind of thing. Yeah. Like you can always, like, because otherwise it, it gets diluted. Like the ego of the person that's making stuff gets destroyed. Yeah. And when you say higher risk, you just mean um, there's a risk that it could turn into a self-indulgent thing that not many people get. But I think the the reason that that's not a, a big concern is you don't have to spend a lot of money on it. Like yeah. a lot of these people that want to do these passion projects, they're just asking for an allotted amount of time to just be by themselves and make the thing that they want. It doesn't have to be expensive. Well, like standard animation budgets, right? Yeah. Uh, in Canada... Like in the U.S., it's like sixty thousand per minute, like per minute or something like that. Per right? minute, yeah. In Jesus. Canada, because Canada's kind of like an overseas thing. <laughs> We're a sweatshop. Yeah, there's a sweatshop. You can sort of do it like if you're working in New Brunswick, you can do it for ten grand a minute. And that's regardless of style. Yeah. Well, like no, it's not regardless versus... of style because you have to keep it cheap if it's ten grand a minute, right? Mm-hmm. But. I think even that is overpriced. You don't actually need 10 grand a minute to make something good. Brad Needley. Well, yeah, but you can make something even more, like, fully animated, not like Professor Brothers, but, like, you can have, like, you know, antics and people wobbling around and doing kind of Disney blinks and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's fine. You can do that. South Park. There's just more... Yeah, it's South Park or whatever. There's more efficient ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh... Like, people are by themselves starting to figure that out, and that's gonna take completely destroy all of the animation industry in Canada for Has sure. Has anybody been um, doing an animated show that's all pixel art? Like there's no yeah, facial there's, animation? There's, there's, it's there's just a... like blinks and stuff? And Well, also the problem is a lot of animators are really boring. And <laughs> I'm sure like I'm just as boring as they are if they might look at my stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, I'm judging them personally because that's the only opinion I can have and I'm looking at their stuff and it's boring. It, mm-hmm. it, like the stories are bad, the writing's bad, the characters are bad, everything's bad. Yeah. And they think it's funny and yeah. it's depressing, right? So like you go to like an auto animation festival and there's like people having like wacky punching each other or it's like girls going to a mall and talk with like high-pitched voices. <laughs> it's just, oh my God. And and they think they genuinely think it's good. Yeah. And I think that's that's a failure of like the education system that produces people that think that's good. Do you remember Stick Death? Yeah. Back in, back in the early internet days, I think Stick Death taught me a lot of stuff. And and same thing with like all your base are belong to us. Oh Those yeah. Those early viral things on the internet were so funny and so. Um, poorly designed, like they were just raw MS Paint type of type of stuff, but they're hilarious. And I think that it, it kind of goes back to like I don't know whether it was on Mark Myron's show or Joe Rogan, but they were talking about how money is kind of the enemy of comedy. Yeah, like sometimes 
you ruin the joke by focusing too much or you don't put much as much time into the writing of the jokes if you're focusing way too much on art direction and um it's not important you know rejected the the hertzfeld thing is funny because it's stick figures stick death is funny because it's stick figures or funnier it's funny because it's a story about cleaning up a crack house that you're tired of being in your neighborhood but if you can imagine that in like okay here's a perfect example another early internet viral video there was the star wars rap Mm -hmm. star wars gangster rap circa 2002 or something oh god they wanted after it was viral they want they felt embarrassed about the animation so they released like version two and three it was so much where they made all like the, the the looping vectors and the squash and stretch on the characters and it was less funny right it was funnier to see just like the clip art scooting across the screen and stuff um i think there's a certain amount of energy that disappears as you age and become more professional yeah like i feel it like we kind of have to keep on our toes because we're all entered the process of uncling. Mm-hmm. Like our faces, like we're not young men anymore, right? We're entering our furries, kind of. And- you notice that when people are referring to you on the street, they say, uh, "Sir." They say David Sedaris was talking about how people, strangers that don't recognize him as a writer, they describe him as like, "Oh, hand that to that old man." Or- oh man. <laughs> and I I remember the, the tipping point where people used to call me a boy. And then they started calling me, like, the young man, and now they just call me a man. Yeah, and you're I a go, man now. Uh, you're a proper oh. man. <laughs> like, I figured it out. Like, I can't wear shirts with, like, funny characters on them anymore because it's just inappropriate. I have to wear, you know, things that are more uh, adult. Yeah, you start to look like a stand-up comic wearing ironic sneakers. Yeah, you can't do suit. that anymore. <laughs> it's just... People are starting to weird, like be weirded out, right? Unless you have like kids of your own that are running behind you and mm-hmm. wearing the same thing, and then you're like, oh, you're like you have, you know. There's there's basically there's two types of like people that are evolving right now, like around me. There's people who have there's people who have dad face, yeah, and there's people who have uncle face, and we're all turning, there <laughs> we're all uncling, like we're seriously we're uncling. Like I, my my body is like staying the same. It's I've weighted like the same amount of kilograms as I've always weighted, but my face has grown. And I I can feel it's happening, right? The older I'll get, the bigger my face will become. So uncling is the process of your face getting bigger. Yeah, your face gets bigger and all of your features on your face become sharper. And that's that's in how does that what is dadding then? What's Oh, they have like this weird that uh, they turn into human tractors because they like they have to plow through life to support their progeny, right? So they have to they can't lose their job ever, right? They they're responsible for life, right, yeah. behind them and yeah. in front of them. So they have to sh- you know put it on a shelf and put a roof on it. They always have slight and then they have tension to put in their brow. In their, yeah, so like and then they're looking and they're uh, they're more reactive, right? Because there's like they have to keep alert. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that was going on when I was working in like a big corporation. There's yeah. a lot of dadding and They're uncle. all slightly worried. Yeah. And they're all really afraid to, like I am afraid to lose my job just because I have like this thing where, uh, I don't know, I have like, I would have sort of, like I, I, I sort of have like this uh, old world kind of shame that if I, if, if, I, if I can't make a living, then I'm like somehow failing all of my family and ancestors and stuff. <laughs> I have that, I have the Protestant work ethic. Yeah, I don't know if I have a work ethic. I just have like the fear of not being able to like uh, accomplish a certain level of success that allows me to be a proper man. So you feel like if you hit the jackpot and you got the lottery winnings, do you think that would go away, 
or you would be responsible to become an oligarch after even after you were rich. No, I would have to. I would have to invest, and I would have to get more money. Like, <laughs> there's no way I would like buy a bunch of golden bathtubs. It's not. It's not possible. Like, I wouldn't even invest them in passion projects. I would just put them like to work somewhere else. I would invest in like a factory in China or something. Yes. <laughs> All of your oligarch family members would want you to get more mistresses, more beluga caviar, a better car. Well, move to London. Sort of. I, I I don't think I can get get along with those people. They're a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But the, yeah, if I had money, I don't even know if I would invest in like my own ideas. Mm-hmm. Like I probably would, but most of it would go somewhere else. Like just uh, pay for safety. Mm-hmm. It's like a ransom thing, right? It'd be really interesting if you started to fund your friend's passion projects. It'd be really interesting to see who jumped at the opportunity or whether they were all talk. Like you say like, oh, that's a really good idea. How much do you need for it? And they're like, uh, I don't know. Never really thought of it. He's like, no, no, no let's do it. I will give you $5,000 and we'll hire a team and you know, we'll have a deadline of December 15th, I, I, 2015. I and they're like, oh, I don't know, Ilya. That sounds a little scary. Well, like I talked to like some people that I like I knew, right? And they were like, they would look at my shit and they'd be like, "Oh, you want some money?" And I can't do it. I can't take their money. Yeah. Right. I feel guilt because what if it doesn't work out, mm-hmm. right? So uh, and also like I I should do it myself. Kinda. Yeah. I feel weird. Dean was telling me a great story about um, he worked with an indie director, mm-hmm. and it was financed. The film that they made was like a, a horror movie intended to go to the Toronto After Dark Festival. Yeah. And it didn't turn out well. Mm-hmm. It uh, they didn't find a distributor and it kind of died and they spent like a hundred thousand dollars on it, but the the guy who put up the money was anxious to start working on the next one. Like as surreal as it is to us because we've always been on like kind of the bottom rung of the economic ladder, there are people who just have money to spend and they're bored and they want to put a dent in the universe and they can't figure out ways to be creative themselves, so they want to enthusiastically give money to. I think I would want to take a loan. If somebody offered me money, I would love to return it to them. Because I would want that responsibility. And it'd be also nice if you owned the stuff that you made. Oh, I don't care about that. Oh, okay. Why would you care about that? That's so unimportant. Like, owning the stuff that you make? Like, that's what that's what the problem with all these uh, all these animators that are like, well, you know, if you sell your idea to this company, they'll just take it and they'll rape it. And nothing of, like, what you have is going to stay there. And, and then they just don't give it to anyone. It's like, oh, I have this golden idea. But or it might just... turn into a worldwide phenomenon and you're always associated as being the creator of uh, if, even Sonic if... the Hedgehog. Or, you know, Punky Brewster, whatever... <laughs> garbage thing that comes out who cares are you that limited like in your brain power that you can never come up with anything else better than what you've had like is this your pinnacle are you familiar with the snuggie i invented the snuggie just don't mention it if you're embarrassed by it just like get the new pseudonym i'm gonna call myself bill from now on and that's it right Mm -hmm. i've never worked on any of the like squirrel games or whatever the hell i made like or i don't know all the all the crappy shows i like worked on right Nobody needs to know. Mm-hmm. Like, why would they need... Like, even if they'll go on IMDb and look my name up, like... Yeah. So what? And the the reality is that everyone is kind of professionally insecure about being associated with a project that, that they're unproud of. But it doesn't work that way. Like, people understand that you can do stuff for money. And there's an odd kind of respect. Like, if you listen to Hollywood interviews a lot... There's oh, yeah. not a whole lot of bashing of Jerry Bruckheimer, even though 
like you see on Metacritic and stuff, the movies get panned among like working directors. They do appreciate that he has some kind of superpower to make these things that make gigantic amounts of money. Or you can be Adam Sandler though. That's uh, <laughs> he makes gigantic amounts of money and everything. He but makes. there's an odd respect that he's a good businessman. He's a film. That's true. He can, man. he can launder money really well, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know what? I'm sure he can make a good movie if he really wanted to. Punch Drunk Love. Well, that wasn't him, but he was just in it. But <laughs> he was he was in, uh, imbued with the with an artistic spirit by a, a very good director in the same way but that he can Scar be imbued, imbued with it. That's so that's okay. Mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson is not good. It doesn't matter what she's in. She, I think that her heart's in the right place. I think that she's a lot like Keanu Reeves. Like if we hung out with oh, her, yeah, she's just like a regular true. chick who would have a lot of the same, she'd be a fan of a lot of the same culture as we are, but she just doesn't really have the chops. And she's been given, like, Every an access code where she has the opportunity to work with a lot of these cool things, and it's hit and miss, but it's not, uh, I, don't, I don't feel any animosity. It's not offensive. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't anger me when I look at her. I'm just like, I look at it, and I'm like, okay, well, here she is again. Eventually, she'll get older, and then what? Yeah. And then you just feel sad. Because I don't under, like whenever I see ScarJo, I'm I'm just kind of like imagine if they they gave Kate Blanchett more work, <laughs> like she'd be great in this Alien movie. Oh my god! It would add like so many more levels to it. But again, I don't I don't. Uh, well, you can't begrudge people for trying to do stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a Tom Waits fan. She's worked with a lot of really good directors. She was good in um, her. Well. She's she's excellent at playing a robot and a girl she, that's confused and has no yeah, direction. Disassociated from the world. <laughs> she's sitting there and you know Staring just, at just things. Do like nice glossy shots of her butt. Just that that's really it. That that's okay. You know, that that that's needed too. I I have nothing against that. That's great. There's that Anaconda video where Nicki Minaj just waves her giant butt everywhere and it's Jeez Louise. Amazing. I was at a party. And the consensus in the room was that nobody had seen that video. Really? And so Dean projected it. It's a six, great video. 60, Sixty feet high on the on the ceiling of the the condo or the house that we were at. I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. That woman is like built for for sexual extraordinary feet thingamajig. Yeah, and it's it's so funny that like imagine you were a really talented hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. And you weren't hot, right? Missy like Elliott. She, it's it's like uh, it's like Nicki Minaj has been grown in a lab to have like the perfect body and talent aligned. But you, you can know? do that, right? There's Missy Elliott and Lil Kim, and they're both not very hot at all. But they're both not as famous as as she is. I think at the time, I Missy Elliott's probably just as famous. Anyways, it's I, yeah. I I appreciate it as a as a perfect hybrid of everything the genre wants. Oh yeah. That's not even hip hop though. That's just pop music. There's that. She's uh, also a very good MC though. Yeah. She just. I think that there's a lot more money in making radio pop, so that's what they're doing. Again. And I saw the Taylor Swift song that apparently is is popular. I was quite impressed. It's, it's good. Catchy. They're catchy all song. like all the pop music <laughs> is fine. They're like you know, the people who've been making pop music probably know what they're doing. I thought Taylor Swift was a country artist. Is she? I, the I don't song really... that I saw wasn't country. It was just a pop song. Like a Katy Perry Swift could have or like done Kelly it. Clarkson. I don't know. Like all these people, I I don't know anything about them, honestly. 
So do you see a similar kind of um, uncling slash dadding happening among like ladies? Is there a different kind of genre that they enter into in their 30s? Well, okay, that is true. That does happen. Like Lisa has like this huge Korean family and there's this, uh, this thing when um, like a lady gets children, she stops, uh, she starts wearing like visors and she gets, uh, <laughs> they're called ajumas. Right, and they get—they all get the same perm that looks like it's there forever, <laughs> and they start wearing, wearing like pink tracksuits and stuff. <laughs> and uh, like Lisa kind of threatens me with that once in a while. She's like, "Just you wait, I'm gonna turn into an Ajuma, and that's gonna be—that's it. That's what's gonna happen." And but then, it, what do the husbands of Ajumas look like? Oh yeah, they start also like they get wigs and stuff, and they start drinking Crown Royale, <laughs> just like carrying it everywhere, and like they lose. Yeah, it's it, it's it's. It's like a weird zoo. And then what? what's the other side of it? And the other side of it is you just kind of age gracefully. <laughs> so yeah. that, that that could happen. It's they a, become cougars? It happens to girls, yeah. They don't become cougars, but they just like... I don't know, they just stay kind of the same, but they uh, they start dressing more adult, you know? Like this. That's, that's really it. Less and skin? Less... Um, and also they become less scared. Like, I think it happens to all of us, too. We become less scared of, like, interactions. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen, just in my own um, existence, like, my own consciousness, I haven't really seen a marked improvement in my intelligence over my life. But I have seen my fear response get under control. So what I mean is, like... There's nothing that I'm doing now that would make me better at public speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm not any more quick-witted than I was. If anything, I'm less quick-witted than I was at 20-some-odd. Yeah. But I'm a whole lot less scared. And that makes me more patient, and that makes um, talking, like, I, I feel like I'm getting stupider, for sure. <laughs> but I also feel like I can compensate that with experience. Mm-hmm. And, like, honestly, we're talking as, like, 33-year-olds. So, yeah. you know, like, there's probably a person who's 60 is listening to this and it's like, oh, my God, those babies are talking about stuff. <gasps> yeah. But you can draw on your life experiences and you can project into the future more. While before, you were just, like, everything was like, I don't know what's going to happen if I talk in front of those people. Maybe they right. will, like, take my skin off and right. wear it as an underpants. But... Uh, right now, I know, like, I know my limits. I know mm-hmm. how like awful I am at this one thing, and then I can plow through it because I can kind of see the reward. Right. So even if I'm terrible, I still I understand if I have to do this or I can abandon it and what the stakes are. Yeah, it Just, seems like that's the definition of maturity. Because I remember thinking stuff like, when I was a kid, oh, it would be really scary to travel somewhere. Because I got to go to the airport, and then what if they ask me for my passport? And then I got to raise money to go to the thing. And then once I get there, what if nobody speaks English? And there's all these what if potholes, these pitfalls that you're imagining. And then you get older, and you have a bit of experience with it, and those questions start to get answered all the way along the line. Yeah. And you go like, any any of the unforeseen questions, you go like, we'll figure it out. We f- we usually figure it out. Well, so. I, like I don't know if you think about death a lot, right? Because like I think about death all the time. <laughs> But we had this conversation where you said that like people just get bored of life at the end of life and they're like okay when I they're will. dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why you think that. I think there's enough stuff to see and experience and you can always have more. This is again, I think this is a failure of imagination. Right. But I can see how I would uh, 
completely understand everything that I've already done and I could project into the future as what would happen with my body and how it would interact with the outside world. Yeah. So at that point, either I would have to get more imaginative and like start doing stuff that's like much different than what I've been doing up until that point. Right. So I'd have to get really creative. Mm. Or I could die. Yeah. So I'd rather not die, but I think everyone will. Mm-hmm. So like I can get hit by a truck tomorrow. When I say, yeah. when I talk about repetitiveness and imagining that I'll be bored, what I'm really describing is that, you know, that samurai code where if, like, you know, the way broadly um, you'll see it in all things. That's more what I'm talking about. The more expertise that I get in different stuff, the more I realize it's the same story that's happening over and over in different forms. And so what I'm describing is like, I imagine like at a time in my eighties where I've seen all the variations of like how people can fall in love, how people can like make a discovery, how people can better themselves. Those broad arcs that don't have anything to do with subject matter. I'm imagining that I'll get, I might get bored of seeing that story play out. You get tired of seeing the hero arc and you just go like, okay, I, I get it. I understand how life works on the planet and in the cosmos, and I'm ready to just join the infinite. But don't you think that once you've achieved mastery, you would want to like, you know, ride the wave for a little bit? Oh, totally. Like, I understand novelty. Yeah. I understand that it would be fun to learn a martial art. It'd be fun to do some sex tourism. It'd be fun to go to space. Yeah. Um, but within those things... Like I said, if you once you achieve mastery, you kind of see that it's the same type of pattern and the same type of like headspace that comes the same kind of satisfaction you get from mastering knitting, you get from public speaking, you get from it's an emotional thing. Yeah, no, I understand. You will see the pattern and you will see it through to the end. So you'll be like, why should I bother even wasting my energy if I already mm-hmm. know what's going to happen? Like even now at 33, I get the feeling like there used to be a number of facets of human character that were completely alien to me. Like I didn't understand like how somebody could become a murderer, how somebody could become a mountain climber, how somebody could blank. Right. And now as I have empathy for a lot of different people that I've met and I've seen how stuff works, right? Like you under, you had an idea that you thought it would be interesting to at some point, like start a new career where you go back to university at like 40 and you study chemical engineering or bioengineering and you start a whole new career from scratch. I think I might do that. It sounds like fun. You know, just for stimulation. Yeah. And um, I feel like I would, I might get tired of of the the restart, the the next chapter kind of thing where I would would understand that like, okay, if I want to learn this thing, I just have to treat it like Tim Ferriss where you break it down into a series of small lessons. What are the most important aspects of being a mathematician? And you learn those things and you get 20% of the knowledge allows you to do 80% of the work as a working mathematician. It's kind of... I think it, it all depends what your goal is, right? If your goal is to get mastery at something, yeah. Mm-hmm. But if your goal is to like... Like if you're becoming a mathematician, right? For example, like I don't have the brain for it. Like right. I have a hard time with logic. But you probably could, like you have a certain... like affinity to like logical puzzles and stuff i can definitely bash my head against the wall over and over again i'm stubborn but like when i see people doing that kind of stuff and they take like pleasure in just imagining abstract like completely abstract things Mm -hmm. and i have um i almost don't see the path to mastery of that thing just with my head right it would take me much longer 
but if you can figure out how good the reward is compared to what you're doing right now, the reward is just personally for yourself, like in your own head, then that might be worth it mm -hmm. for me at least. Yeah. Right. It's not about the process of mastering stuff, but it's about um, just like putting new things into your brain and seeing how it uh, changes it. Yeah. One thing that I absolutely never get tired of is I have a, a constant hunger for new stories. Like sitting down with you and sitting down with my other friends that have been doing different stuff in the world and then hearing it recounted in a, in a witty and concise way is always stimulating to me. It always gives me brain sparks whenever I hear somebody talk about something that they've observed in the world. Even more so than like had I done it myself, like me going out and going to the market today and, and buying the sprats and stuff and seeing a bunch of weird things. I feel like I can I get more pleasure from it coming away and deriving a story from that and then delivering that story from you and then getting a re a more, an emotional reaction from it. Like I almost feel like it's a separate thing. I can't live and appreciate living at the same time. The stories that I derive from having adventures are very, very valuable to me. So on, on that side of it, I can see lamenting not being able to like still go out into the world and mine for, for humor and, and things like yeah. that. I think it's the two sides of the man sandwich, right? <laughs> like on, 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 on one side, there's this, on one side of the sandwich is like, you know, like me and Lisa travel a lot. So we go to Europe and we consume things with our eyes and our brains and we get those brain sparks. Yeah. And then I can come back and I can tell you a story. It's like I went to like whatever city and then there was stuff in there. Yeah. Right. Um, and the other side of the man of the man sandwich is uh, getting things filtered through somebody else's personality. Mm. And then you get the story, but you get the story plus all the extra human that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like their upbringing and what they did and how they do it and how they move and how they think. You're getting that through their description, <laughs> plus the things they've done. Mm -hmm. So, like sometimes, like you know how like it's much better to watch uh, like gameplay videos with people narrating them than oh, playing yeah. a lot of games. Mm -hmm. Like remember that Viking dude that just played? Uh, He's amazing. Yeah, that the that King he just feed yeah. him. He just played naked through Skyrim, right? And he just punched <laughs> everyone to death. Never right? use a weapon. If you do it yourself, it's kind of boring, right? Because it's really hard and you have to punch like all these animals and then they don't die and you die and you have to do it again. But then he's there. He edited the video for you and you're getting the King of Sweden personality, right? And it's it's great. So that's what I mean like by, by, like, by man sandwiching the story, right? <laughs> so, yeah. There's just like two two sides of it, and uh, both are very important because otherwise you don't have it, right? You need people who do stuff, and then you need people who retell it, and mm -hmm. uh, it goes back and forth. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, what I, I actually really like the brain sparks thing. I I wonder if there's a term for it, but you know, but you know, because like um like when you're listening to like music for the first time, that's like amazing when you're 12 and you like put the like put your earphones on and you hear I don't know a song by Metallica and then you're like oh my god right the lightning is the best thing ever <laughs> right and it gives you that thing when your brain is a sponge and somebody's squeezing it and mm. it's just pleasurable mm -hmm. right and it's not like sexual or anything it's just like it's an intellectual thing or if you're reading like an amazing book and you're like oh my god and and it also happens right you feel like your brain gets carbonated yeah. I don't know if there's a there's a term for that there's like it's like 
Yeah, it's like Mountain Dew in your brain. There's mm-hmm. like little sparkles in there. Yeah, I and wonder. I, yeah. I feel like uh, if I procreate, that's one of the the kind of life philosophies that I want to pass on. If I'm talking to like the next generation about what I feel like are the most important things to focus on in the world, it's like trying to find those brain sparks is one of the most fun things about being a human. Well, that's what I want my work to be, right? If I make something, I want it to induce that in other people, mm-hmm. right? Or at least some person, right? Yeah. Because then you know that you've created, like, you've created something that, like, makes an impact. Yeah. If somebody's actually, like, felt something when they're... Because, like, a lot of stuff, I look at things, and I'm like, ah, that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. Or you just look at it, and it's like, oh, they really did a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a lot of work. Or it just looks like... Um two ideas that have been sandwiched together yeah it's like you can see the two influences and there's nothing coming from the sum of the parts yeah i don't even think it's about professionalism i think it's like mm-hmm. this is where part where the part where like the inspiration kind of comes through mm-hmm. like there's a lot of people who are like really good professionals and they can make really really competent work yeah and I feel like like I can do it in my professional work, mm-hmm. but nothing that they've professionally done creates that kind of a brain spark mm-hmm. effect. And if you can do it even once, that's so good. And the hardest like, thing to talk about with with us, with us as artists is that um, the the true art, the true the true inspiration, is sometimes not something that is going to come to everybody. And that's why it's special. And that's why it's valuable. And so you say that to like a, a young artist, or if you're trying to motivate yourself, this project might not do that that's might have that not have that spark that you're looking for and it doesn't matter how much hard work you put into it and how much like fancy art direction you wrap around it it doesn't have that thing and your friends will come to you and they'll say like that's okay i I, (laughs) he's like you know what the best thing that illy ever did was when we were sitting having that beer and he was making fun of that guy's mustache that was the funniest goddamn thing i've ever heard and you go like that and you have hard time like having ownership of it, right? Like when we're just having a conversation, and you bring up your description of you know cougar, a Korean woman, and it just comes from ethereal. It just like flies out of your mouth without a lot of analysis. That doesn't feel like it's as valuable to us as like stuff that we we were writing a joke for six hours yeah. and we were tailoring it, trying to make it really good. That feels like it should be the thing that people like, but then sometimes you can just spitball something. It's way better. I feel like uh, that's a statistical thing. Mm. You just have to do a lot of stuff. Like the more stuff you do statistically, eventually one of them will be really good. Yeah. Just because that's just predictive. You're just throwing spaghetti it's, at the wall. It is. But it's like your personal spaghetti. It's like the spaghetti of your life. So you just like jerk off on a wall and then eventually one of them will be like you know, better than the others. If one of them looks like yeah. Jesus or the Mona Lisa. Yeah. You go like, finally, it happened. Yeah, I've created things. <laughs> My brain loins have made things into it. Yeah. But, yeah, you never know what's going to stick. But, uh, like, everything anyone does has, like, this big blob of personality attached to it. Mm-hmm. Even if it's, like, belabored or uh, if they if it's not very good, you can always, like, kind of read through it and see sort of the kind of person that made it because if you can't then you should stop i'm a big believer in eps and what i mean by that is like you know how bands will put together what they think constitutes an album because the songs sit together Mm -hmm. and then they don't throw away the stuff that didn't make the album they just release it as a second thing that's like these are our b-sides these are the things that we don't think match or aren't as good Mm -hmm. i feel like you should release everything because it's so funny to see in every 
whether you're a musician or whether you're an artist or whatever, you don't know what people are going to resonate with. Like the thing that you like and the thing that you throw away, it may have been the thing that you threw away that people liked. Like there was this, did you read um, Stephen King's on writing? Uh, well, I think I did. It's an, he has, it's a good audio book. He, he, he basically reads it himself and uh, he kind of lays out his Protestant style, um, working class show up every day and, and make a novel type of thing. No mm -hmm. bullshit, hard work, um, inspirations for amateurs, that kind of thing. Yeah. And one thing that's funny about it is like, he's first starting out, he's working as a teacher. He decides to write a horror novel. He writes Carrie. Mm -hmm. and he's disgusted by it. He's like, this is lowest common denominator. It's per slightly perverted. I'm embarrassed about this thing. I was supposed to be a real writer. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, um, my mentors would be ashamed of me. Like he keeps on thinking of himself compared to history and stuff. So he tosses it in the waste bin uh -huh. and goes off and becomes an alcoholic and stuff. And um, his wife, uh, Tabitha, is like cleaning out his office and she finds like the whole manuscript in the garbage and she's like all right i'm gonna pretend that i'm throwing this away but i'm gonna keep it and read it and she goes through it and she's like this is really good mm -hmm. you should send it to the thing mm -hmm. and that ends up getting him his big break and it becomes a multi-million selling thing and it basically uh gives him a platform to be uh to have the career that he did it launched everything mm -hmm. and it was only because like his wife took it out of the garbage and forced them to publish it. It's it's such an interesting kind well, of thing. It's kind of a lucky break, right? But uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, a lot of people have to just keep trying. Like no nothing might stick eventually, right? But at least they'll have a body of work, right? So that's kind of fun too. Just having a whole bunch of stuff that you've done. That's that's a cool thing, even if none of it is very good. There's very few people that continue working and continue making stuff for years and years and years and don't get any better. You you always will get better. Everybody starts at different levels of effectiveness, but I firmly believe that like if I had to 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 restart and like give um advice to like art schools or any kind of school, it's like throw out the grades for one thing and just focus on like honest assessments to the students individually about like what their character is and what their talent is and f under because like what the thing that i'm getting at is that there was kids that we went to to air shared an illustration with mm -hmm. that were not talented they were not in like the higher end of the talent spectrum in our class, mm -hmm. but they end up being the most successful illustrators they just stick to because it. they worked harder than yeah. everybody else and you could see them um, building up that hard work and discipline, just it, being able to go the, th the three or four years at school surrounded by people who were better than them and not getting dis discouraged. Keep plugging away year after year. You, you, you touch base with them again 10 years later, and it's like, wow, your art's really good now. Like, you, you cracked it. You, you, well, you, you know what, working. though? Uh, that kind of art is a craft, right? It's not really... Well, you know, you well, that's a, that's a great point. It's yeah. cabinet making, mm -hmm. right? We'll so you you, you, you can be get better at cabinet making. If you are boring and if you have nothing in the back of your head, you will never get better. Like you will make great cabinets and they'll still be boring. So <laughs> there is also there is a market for boring cabinets. There is, and they can do really well. But there's like 
But there are certain things that only certain people can do, and I've noticed that too. Like when I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm not a good animator, right? Like I've seen people who are good animators. They're naturals, right? When they just like they see a character and they're like, oh, I can imagine all the curves right in my head that are like right in my frontal lobe, and they just move it, and it's like they don't even have to try, right? It's amazing looking. Everything's smooth. It looks like Disney's uh, magic penis is running around mm-hmm. and like wobbling and stuff and doing all the antics. Yeah, and. Uh, and it takes you like you know three four years to just get to that level, right? And you can never catch up. Yeah. You can be a professional. Yeah. So like I am a professional. I can get a job and I can work at it and I can get a paycheck. But you're not a natural. But I'm not a natural. Mm-hmm. Like there's people who are like and and a lot of these people work really really hard, just as hard as you, right? So you know, it's a time competition right it's like you don't have a, like your time is la- like is is less valuable than their time and to be fair it's like in a head-to-head race like after five years once you become adequate at your craft and you're a good cabinet maker yeah the difference between a working class guy who has really polished their skills and that person who was a god that didn't have to work as hard it's like it's only that little five percent difference at the but, end but I that, but the problem is they also work as hard. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily like a loser that just relies on yeah. their talent. And most, most, most often than not, they're just as hard at working mm-hmm. at it, right? Unless they just abandon it or yeah. whatever, right? So um, you have to find other ways. Like you have to find where your uh, actual talent is, right? And then try and shove it in, mm-hmm. just like fist it right into your craft. <laughs> So yeah, you, you know. say like, well, he's better at squash and stretch than I am, and I won't be able to catch up. Yeah, but I can but make funnier I'm faces, right? Braver. So, yeah, I can make more poop jokes and things that he would never do because yeah. he's a scaredy cat. <laughs> That's yeah. You have to play to your personality, basically. So um, there was this um, a long time ago. Like I read an article about like a carpet maker, mm-hmm. and uh, he studied for like fifty years, and he became, and you finally like you graduate, you make. Master's thesis and it's your like best Persian carpet that you can make <laughs> and it's all according to like very rigid structures right so you have to have like one pattern on one side one pattern on the other side a tiger like flashing his breasts like in the middle <laughs> and then uh, it's a perfect carpet right yeah you made it if you, if, if, if you pass like the final test and become like a super carpet maker that's it mm-hmm. you are now you can make that carpet now you can make that carpet over and over and over again but I guess, but but I think, but and then and then they're like, and the idea is that that's when you become creative, right? You that, know, the when rules, you master, so you can break the rules. Yeah, but you don't even have to break the rules, right? You can achieve like this super zen thing mm-hmm. where you go within the rules, and the thing that you made according to the rules is still miles better than anyone else who made exactly the same thing, right? Right? You just like imbue it with your like the essence of your brain, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And you can start doing more advanced techniques that, well, like they talk about in, um, I think it's one of Seth Godin's riffs. Man, you love that Seth Godin. Oh, he's he's the he's a genius. I, I'm freaked out by the bold, weird <laughs> prophet thing. It's Turtle-ish. like he's a cult leader, man. Like, how is he? Like, I don't know. Well, he hasn't. Well, maybe I don't know. Anyways, yeah. uh, he the thing that I've learned the most from him is that he's very good at. Um, making he does that Malcolm Gladwell thing where there's very specific real life nonfiction stories mm-hmm. that apply to a, a larger philosophy 
that you can emulate. Mm -hmm. And so one of the anecdotes that he had was about uh, rock climbing Mm -hmm. and how um, there was a rock climber about a decade ago, I think, that invented this technique where you leap off of the wall and you grab onto... Oh, that's a f- farther ledges. That's cool. For the longest time, like since mountain climbing was invented in like the 1800s to the modern era, there was a very firm rule for everyone who was taught mountain climbing that you needed to keep one hand and one foot on the wall at all times. And um, it was something that was taken so seriously that it was part of like the standard form, even in competitions, like when you're relatively safe you're you're roped into the wall and stuff you're not going to fall mm-hmm. um you uh you even if you're in a race to the top of the mountain you keep one hand and one foot on the wall the problem is that like it becomes a limitation and it wasn't until this one guy figured out that he could spider-man jump off of the wall and grab onto a farther ledge that there led to like this breakaway it was kind of like once the the four minute mile was broken suddenly like everybody could do it like he he broke the system and then everyone who was capable of doing like the advanced technique was able to to outpace everybody by a mile you know that's a breakthrough right mm-hmm. yeah that's cool when that happens that's a uh, doesn't happen often though it changes imagination too right like yeah. the people who are studying the thing understand that there's other limits that they didn't know kind of like when they're going on about like coming up with these warp drive engines at NASA like it, it's a weird kind of it feels like the scientists are trying to hack the system oh well like, yeah well but <laughs> because they have to right because like it's so depressing that you can travel faster than light mm-hmm. so yeah so the, they, they came up with like the warp engine like this thing it's called uh alcubierre drive and it's it's this mexican um this mexican mathematician right and he was like a fan of uh he's a fan of star trek mm-hmm. so he's like well how can i make star trek work for me right i need if I can't travel faster than light, I have to either change the speed of light or I need to change the r- rules of physics. So how can I make an equation that fits so that it would change the rules of physics within the rules that we have? Yeah. So, and it totally works, right? And um, they used to think that you need like a mass of energy like as big as Jupiter. Mm-hmm. But now NASA got its stuff and they're like, they're looking at it. It's like, oh, we can make it more efficient. So now it's like the size of like the Voyager probe. Right. But the thing is, though, like it kind of relies on this thing called exotic energy and that thing's not proven to exist. Right. So, so it, if it, exotic it, energy doesn't it, exist, then yeah, they got to start back yeah, at they gotta square go, one. Yeah, they got to go and try something else. And also it, 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 it breaks causality, right? Because mm. so, like, if you can travel b- b- faster than light, that means you can travel in time, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, you travel faster than light, you go like 100 light years away right and you come back you traveled into the future oh right correct yeah so uh you know it's weird because uh, you can you, know, you can start killing your own grandfather and do this old stuff that should technically break the universe yeah i i think i, I like that futurama episode they think that it splits up and like yeah. it makes a whole bunch of but this is just, this is just like i think this is just people trying to make the world fit what they want it to do yeah but the nature of reality is probably much weirder than what they think it is it's like that uh whatever plato's cave thing how like you're you're, you're if, if we were living in a cave and we want to know what the outside world's like mm-hmm. and uh 
we don't we can't even imagine it because we're, we're yeah what is the nuance of that i hear people referencing the plato cave all the time but i don't really know what okay the i think thing is. i don't okay i'm not you know a plato's cave specialist you probably should, <laughs> should ask robert plato's todd cave specialist. well i don't know like uh, you should ask robert todd right because they just like they've studied it in school but from what i remember is that when um if you're like a person that lives in the cave and you've never seen the outside world and you just you're a cave person you can't perceive it right but there's also like the world outside but it, so so if you've like grown up in the cave and you've only been able to understand what's like around in the cave oh, if okay. you're put like in this world outside you won't even know how to process it right because like oh, okay so it's like that well like it's like if idea you're idea that you can only know the universe as far as like your senses can take you and yeah as far as your tools can take you like if you're like a three-dimensional creature trying to understand the fourth like a for the fourth dimension mm -hmm. like it won't work yeah like you just don't like you, you're not built for that sure right? and we we uh we have a hard time wrapping our heads around it because like our math is telling us that there's these far-off star systems and that they might have water and stuff on them but our monkey brain is saying like well we should build a boat and go out and visit them it's like yeah but it's it's too far yeah like alan moore was going on about how he was trying to to to, to dampen the enthusiasm like because he thinks that it's it's hardwired in humans that we think that if there's a machine associated with it, a powerful enough machine can do anything. I like that, by the way, because we're we're built to think of in the world in machine terms, tools, tool terms. And he's saying that like it might be it might be like a, a a cosmic fact that we can't make a machine that gets us past interstellar distances, and it might just be our um, monkey uh, hubris telling us that it might be possible to to go to another star i like that communist thing where there was this communist slogan when i was growing up and that was uh man is king of nature yeah right so you're just supposed to be in charge like if if animals should die they should die mm -hmm. and you should eat them and you should make more and we will always be smart enough to solve any problem be it like global warming or nuclear holocaust or whatever yeah. you can always build a machine you can organize with some dudes and you can like solve a problem with your brains and i really like that attitude i think it's optimistic i mentioned right? uh i think it was brendan was telling me this sci-fi story about um their uh, a landlocked alien civilization and they're able to explore the universe by kind of 3D printing themselves out. In other oh, yeah, Von, Von Neumann probes. That's one of the things that, like, uh, we think that we can explore the universe because we can't travel faster than light, but we can send, like, a whole million, a million of probes outside, right? Or if, you had, like, if you had some sort of... Um, Self-replicating probes. If you had yeah. some sort of way of transferring information, like... Um, through uh what do they call it when they split the particle apart and the two halves of the particle yeah that doesn't work but sure quant <laughs> like, uh, qu qu yeah it's uh, the quantum uh, entanglement uh, quantum entanglement yeah. I, did, I thought they were running on boing boing the other day that they had managed to teleport yeah 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 but you can't teleport information you can only like the the thing the thing that people forget is just like there's one particle and there's another particle and as soon as you check like what's the status of one particle the other particle gets that status two kind of mm -hmm. like the, the charge but if you had half right? and i had half i could no like, no no it's it. not two halves it's the same thing right okay if you have the same thing and i have the same thing can i morse code no you? you can't that's the thing that that that's what people don't understand you can send information one way and it will just be there yeah 
But like you can, and if you're on the other end reading it, then we can transmit it. No, it's it doesn't travel faster than light. I, I honestly, it's really difficult, and I don't really understand it. Mm-hmm. But there's this hard limit where you can't actually like no information actually moves from one side to another or something like that. It just, uh, yeah, it it doesn't go faster than light. Basically, it doesn't break causality. Because otherwise, you could just send like you know the Morse code for how to create an exact clone of you in like a transporter, right? And then yeah. just like elaborate replicate yourself. That's not gonna work. It, everyone like thought about it as soon as it came up, and then they like the physicists came back. Came back, and they're like, "No, it's not what you think it is. You can make really good computers that way, but that's about it." The other funny thing would be if you could make contact with a mon- monkey civilization, and you give them a monolith, and the monolith is going to be responsible for giving them all of the tools that they need to build the space age and invite the aliens to their planet. <laughs> But a, you realize a, it's going to take a million years for them to get there. That's a, a, <laughs> literally. Yeah. They need to like invent the Bronze Age. That they need to fuck around with, make steel, and then they need a, a communist revolution, and then <laughs> layer after layer. That's the Andromeda strain, right? That's uh, that uh, story. I think it's a, by this French guy. Anyway, then like the aliens just send uh, this machine. Mm-hmm. Like they send like the exact blueprint of a machine that you need to build, and it's like it has like this perfect woman's body in it, and then you just it just manufactures it, and then it kills everyone. The woman, right? the, the manufactured woman, kills yeah. everybody. She's just like evil. She's oh. like the alien, uh, you know, sentry, right? Oh to, shit! Right. So like, and well, that's then, rude. Uh, that's was, almost like Prometheus, that stupid Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, well, there's, there's, that was the Stephen Hawking thing, right? He, like, published an article recently. He's like, we really should stay away from aliens because every advanced civilization, when it comes in contact with a less advanced civilization, it completely decimates it. Yeah, they treat them like cattle. It's not that just... But that might be a human thing. But, it like, it works with humans and dogs and cows, too, right? It doesn't really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's interspecies. Like, right, they're right, just right. more advanced. Yeah, cows would eat you if they had the facility. Like, they've chosen a niche... Yeah, where they eat mostly grass because it's a, it's plentiful, but if they have the opportunity to eat a bird, they'll eat a bird. Sure. Oh, you've seen that deer deer eating a bird uh, mm-hmm. video where it just like catches like a bird and just like chews it. And the the woman watching it is horrified. At first, she thinks that the deer is is going to help the injured bird. No, <laughs> it just devours it. And her husband is is standing beside her while she's freaking out, and he's just like, <laughs> that happened. Uh... Another killer. <laughs> It happened like in the last ten years. Hippos started coming out of the Nile and eating cows. <laughs> They're like giant, fucking huge, evil, angry monsters, right? They're like, and they were, you know, they usually are just these eat domesticated grass. cows that don't realize the hippo. Well, they're just cows. I don't know, but they, they just they, the hippos are fast too, right? Mm-hmm. They're like related to elephants. They're like just giant swimming, evil eating machines. So if they become carnivorous, that's a complete like paradigm shift uh-huh oh man when i like when i went to egypt that was like the most disgusting place like in the nile is just like a garbage covered with garbage <laughs> <laughs> and imagining like giant zombie monsters yeah they're like hippos coming out of it and eating stuff that's scarier than like a godzilla movie i loved that uh, one anecdote that you came away with where you're kind of wandering through the revolutionary protests and stuff trying to find somebody to to tell you where the the um tourist traps are and you like give some guy like twenty bucks, and he he leads you past like a garbage dump, and then there's this other dump, and it has a hole dug in the side, and you look in thing inside, and it's all full of like artifacts in the middle of the garbage. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was um, we had to cross like a river. It was like a 
where was it? It was like an Aswan. Anyway, so uh, they made me and Lisa sit in different places because she was a woman and like unclean or whatever. <laughs> and then they like every every one of them like scammed money off us and we're like, but it says it's only two Egyptian uh, pounds. And they're like, no, 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 it, you you white here. This is like fifty Egyptian pounds or whatever. And 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 you you kind of. Yeah, you get pissed, and then you still have to pay. Right, and then, and then you and don't then, really and, and then you care go, because and, it ends up translating to five bucks anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, you start caring eventually, because it starts like approaching Western prices, and you're like, I'm trying to have a cheap vacation here, right? I, don't you understand? I came to your country to like spend money and look at cool shit, and you're just like making me miserable by taking money away and not showing me any cool yeah. shit. And you're like, well, at least he's not kidnapping me. Yeah, that's true. That was, that, that was good. <laughs> they had like, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we went across uh, across the river and we went into this weird dumpster village, and there were just like people washing their goats in the nude, and, uh, <laughs> hang- like there's like ladies without legs just like crawling around on little crutches, and you walk through, and then you see like those like Swedish archaeologists are working there and they're washing washing something with soap and they're like just hot babes because mm-hmm. they're there like for their PhD study. Yeah, and we're like, is this where the catacombs are? And they're like, yeah, yeah, go there. And they don't care because, like, I've seen tourists before. They don't want to talk to you. Yeah. And then here, ask Habib. Habib over there will show you. And Habib's there, and he's, like, standing there already with his hand outstretched because he needs money because he has, like, 15 children to feed. And you're like, okay, Habib, here, here's, like, 10 Egyptian pounds. Go show us the thing. And he goes to the thing, and we stick our heads in, and half of it is a toilet. <laughs> Just, like, there's, like, like... Newspapers use the toilet paper with like human feces on them and uh, <laughs> like a, a carcass of a pigeon on the side that's half eaten by somebody. And on the other side, there's like beautiful Egyptian mummies and like the color. You know how like you, you, you look at pictures of like Egyptian catacombs and they're all like black and white kind of yeah. like yellowish. This was like beautiful sky blue colors with gold and red and completely preserved. And it had like the, the pharaoh's face was like a portrait like a properly painted one, not washed out. And yeah, and there's a guy pooping right next to it. So yeah, that country is, uh, the Middle East is complete, like the whole place is kind of, ugh. It must be so strange for the historians. Well, that... they, they love it, right? Because they like, they pay the government or Habib or whoever's there to just like smuggle it out, right? Right. If you go to Berlin, like they have the whole... Um, Ishtar's temple from Babylon completely rebuilt inside the museum, right? <laughs> Shit. And then uh, there in the other and in in the other room there's a Parthenon, mm-hmm. and it's in the British Museum. The Parthenon's in the British Museum. <laughs> the Greeks like when Lisa visited Athens, like there's like this space and it like there's a plaque that says, that, "Oh, we're waiting for the British to return us the Parthenon that they took that one time." <laughs> the British aren't gonna return it. It's gonna be there forever. Right, the whole thing is there. Yeah, like the all the like the the beautiful thing that the, the yeah crusty um, Brits probably think that they're doing them a favor. They're like they're just going to use this as as toilet decorations. <laughs> we can't leave it in the the original lands. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of kind of weird like racism going on, but also there's something to be said for like leaving cool shit in unstable areas. Right. Right. Because, like, remember how they bombed out that Afghanistan Buddha that was, like, the biggest Buddha in the world? No, I didn't hear about that. Well, when the Taliban came to power, like, in Afghanistan, there was the biggest Buddha in the world. It was a mountain carved into a Buddha's face. It Mm -hmm. was, like, Mount Rushmore kind of thing. And it was, like, the most beautiful Buddha ever. And, uh, 
you know, the Taliban came to power and they put some explosives in it and they're like, oh, idolatry. <laughs> I think now there's like somebody paid to rebuild it, but it does, it's not working very well. It's just a money laundering operation. I don't know. It's it's all very Vonnegut esque. Stupid. So it goes. <laughs> yeah. It took, kinda... you, it took you 700 years to carve that mountain. Well, well, we've got the technology to destroy it much quicker. My grandfather used to explode cultural monuments for the Communist Party. That mm-hmm. was his job because, like, as like a Jewish dude, he couldn't get any other jobs. Yeah, he was just like a worker. So he came to Moscow and he like he blew up this amazing ancient church, and then they built Stalin's uh, swimming pool there instead. So he was very proud of that Stalin's swimming pool because he like worked on exploding it. I like that Christopher Hitchens books where it um, it. It establishes or it puts forth the idea that the communists weren't actually godless. Like, they were replacing the religion of the state with the state itself. So, like, the the communist leaders become the high priests and all that? Well, sort of. Like, people can't help but, like, assign assign certain certain characters, like, a hero status. Mm -hmm. You just can't help it. Like, people are going to think that Bob Dylan's a god, like, 200 years from now, right? Or something weird like that. <laughs> Slacker hero. Yeah, but I think it's just your brain kind of moves things into those spaces. Yeah. It's just that what is the religion? But right? the religion is the same thing. you replace the They're... one building with the new building and the one statue with the other statue and people are still not allowed to make fun of it and they have to come and visit it once a year same thing it's just it's a religion it's just but based a, a, a religion is just a type of like it, it it was based as like a set of rules that people live by right yeah it like aside from all the mystical you know supernatural stuff that makes you slightly less afraid of death yeah that's like that's you know it's just, it's just a thing to manage your anxiety yeah right you can believe in like god or jesus or whatever or uh, buddha or mithra whatever the hell you want to believe in but Essentially, like for me, a religion was like always a club for people to hang out. Yeah. To have like connection to other people if you don't really have anything in common with them. Mm-hmm. And even if you do, you can like collect together and chant mm-hmm. or do something yeah. together. Kind of guilt. It's like a guild t- system. Yeah. And alleviate the, fe- alleviate the fear of death, right? Because that's always there. You, everyone's going to die and it's hideously scary. Right. Right. But in uh, like in the old times, it was also kind of like a form of government, right? Mm-hmm. Don't don't eat unclean meat because pigs like eating their own poop, and you don't want to do that. And uh, shrimp are disgusting, so don't touch them. They're related to roaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can have other pragmatic things and, like our our people, our particular income bracket, can't afford the treatment if you get sick from this certain disease. Yeah. So don't get that disease. Well, like the Old Testament has all these rules, right? If your brother's, uh, if your brother dies, you have to take his wife because like you have to, you know, you have to take his wife and his kids into your house because somebody needs to take care of them and now she's your wife just by association. So Yeah, it's the right thing to do. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. If, if your, your wife is, if, gets, if your it's property. Your stays yeah. healthy if, you're, if you have a, a, someone who's taking care of all the children and making yeah, sure. Leave that... all the stuff in the family. And if you have enemies, just, uh, you know, destroy them up, up until the last child so that their genetic pool wouldn't expand. This is all, you know, that's just, a, all of those are just rule books. Monkey right? politics 101. Yeah. So, but I, I, people now think that that doesn't have anything to do with religion. Basically, even like religious people, they see like the that that part where uh, what's her name? There's this lady that uh, kills the enemy king by sticking a tent pole into his uh, temple, <laughs> right? And you think about it, and it's like, how does that relate to God? Is she 
like because it's like she's apparently acting on like orders from God, right? Right. And then you know what's uh, uh, right now? People think religions and more 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 of the metaphysical stuff when you think mm-hmm. more of the deaf stuff. Is there any um, established religion that has your point of view? Like the way you've described to to me your your feeling about tradition and symbology in religion is that. It's important to, as a as a human, a modern human, as a conscious human, to have like a belief in the abstract or like an appreciation of the abstract. I forget how you phrased it, uh, okay. but like, kind of the, there's a Vonnegut story called Cat's Cradle, where yeah. they go to uh, an island nation and there's a cult called the Boko Onoists, mm-hmm. and um, they're they have like really passionate devotion to absurd things that they know are not true i think that's um i think the um, the cognitive dissonance is a very important thing yeah like i think religion is basically it feeds on it and i think this is how we are different from uh monkeys right right because we can imagine thing that we things that we know are untrue right like we, that we don't have any evidence for and you make that leap of faith and i think that leap of faith is the ultimate uh application of imagination as a human that you can make right if you can believe in something that you know it's not there Mm-hmm. And you wholeheartedly believe that it exists, so you know it's there and it's not there at the same time. I think holding that kind of thing in your head is the most advanced thing you can do as a person. Right. Like, personally, I find it really hard to do. I can't yeah. do it. I don't believe in Jesus because blah, 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 or like Jehovah. I can't, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I can't convince myself that it's real. Yeah. But if you can, mm-hmm. if you can wholeheartedly convince yourself that it's real, that's like that's mental gymnastics that make you superhuman. Almost. And what's funny is that if you if you think about the path of the artist or anybody with an imagination, I can imagine that that skill set being an essential part of being able to project, like the way that you restrain from spending all your money, or putting uh, telling yourself that it's worth all the hard work you have to be able to project in the future and believe in something that doesn't exist yet in order to make no it's not that it doesn't exist yet it might not even exist ever right right? like we're we're um people who create stuff and we're trying to work hard at making something great and that great thing might never come but we believe in it and we're projecting into the future a lot i feel like there's an overlap there's a certain way like cognitive dissonance that you have to exercise every day because um because otherwise you stop having a sense of time right you'll be like a cat Mm. like a car moves in front of you and you're like oh car (laughs) food things (laughs) and then uh, as soon as they they disappear from your view that's it like it's gone forever and it's it's like it's like it's never existed right Mm -hmm. but if you can like accomplish something with like the it's like delayed gratification plus. It's like delayed lack of gratification. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you have you, you, you make yourself gratified by just the process of believing. Mm. So that's really cool. And if you can attach like positive values to it, like yeah. positive like human values, like you think about love or whatever, mm-hmm. that's like that's extra awesome because you can project it on other people. It's yeah. not just related to you. It's then related to like how you apply yourself to the world. Yeah. So again. I think religion, like, I, I think that weird militant atheism or, like, saying that there's nothing there, I think it's counterproductive for, like, humans as a species. I think uh, having a schizophrenic way of, like, making things that don't exist exist in your mind are incredibly important. Right. So, I don't know. That's that's I, that's my view on religion. But yeah. uh, but mostly it's just a club for people to chant, so I don't know. I also, I also like that Alan Moore idea that uh, all of religions are true as long as you 
accept that the stuff that they're talking about is ha happening within the imaginations of the people that are describing it. So if you have a if you have a, a drug trip on a, a bunch of magic mushrooms, mm -hmm. you're gonna see portals and stuff open up, and you're gonna see voices talking to you, and a lot of the things that people associate with religious visions, right? What's going on there, and how do you how would you put that to paper two thousand years ago? How would you describe that experience? Especially if you learned something from it, like how do you how do you relate that to well, somebody that if you're if you had a vision, uh, there was some sort of wisdom that was imparted to you from an ethereal thing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you, you like hacked your brain and something happened, right? Yeah. It's just uh, how do you know if it's real or not? You really don't have any way to know, right? Mm. And in the modern era, there's been all sorts of instances of uh, modern cult leaders that their followers have adamantly believed that the person had powers. And it might be um, an extension of the placebo effect, right? Like the people who are under the veil of these charismatic personalities, they might be having a psychedelic experience where they're hallucinating things that aren't there or that they've heard the story so many times that their imagination has like filled in all the blanks and it's as clear a memory having seeing them levitate for those four minutes or as clear a memory as, as seeing like their kid born or whatever. It'd be cool if you know? like somebody just connected electrodes to their heads when they're like doing the weird stuff. <laughs> Cause like, 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 you know, like those sex uh, experts that are just like measuring the female orgasm, by just collecting electrodes to ladies and thinking and seeing like how the, the, if the wave moves or not. Yeah. So it'd be cool to connect that to like psycho cultists and see if it actually like does something to their brain. Mm -hmm. Cause they did that to uh, meditating monks, right? When they're meditating on like compassion and it showed, like, that their brain, like, becomes organized like a beautiful snowflake. And it actually, like, <laughs> that way the brain power increases. Mm -hmm. It increases to meditate, which is kind of useless. But they sure are compassionate people. They really know how to think about compassion really well. They made themselves into the perfect little light bulb that's, like... <laughs> They're able to vibrate on that wavelength yeah. really easily. They just, like, smile and, Can you, you know... the door there? It's hot as... Yeah, we're getting a little bit of a air circulation problem here. You want to take a break? And yeah, let's get water. a glass of water. Yeah. Break. Hello, everyone. How are you? Fine, thank you. Oh my God! Uh, I wish I were a bird. なんであんた英語喋っとるん娘がアメリカに行くのです鳥やったら鳥ではない我輩は猫である猫で投げれば何だというのだあんたの顔なんかに似とるな鳥前首相<笑> I heard Homestar Runner's back. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I didn't check. <laughs> I, I heard his back, and I'm like... Load your clams. Do Round two. The important. end of the show, at the beginning of the show, at the end of the show. Don't close that door, it's too hot. Oh, yeah. Jessica Gordon. You, listen to us you will listen to us and all of our banter. I don't really have to wear those earphones, do I? You do. Why? It makes it sound better. Weird. You can't hear yourself through the thing? You gotta get closer to the microphone. No, I can hear myself really well. It's just like, I don't know. <laughs> Trust me, it's good stuff. Okay. I believe you. <laughs> that, that horse thing on your microphone looks beautiful. Like a oh. pony. Oh, thank you very much. It's, it's just like a pet Oh, have you seen those uh, those things? Uh, what are they called? 
the the Belgian rabbits, the Flemish rabbits. There's the there's giant rabbits that are like the size of like a really large dog. Mm-hmm. They look like evil things because they're everything in them is bigger. And they're really docile, but if they open their mouths, they look like death. <laughs> they're ready to nibble you. So this is this is the Jesus year. Oh yeah, Schwartz. Thirty-three. That's right. Thirty-three. How's it going? It's going well. We had a long conversation, long Skype conversation with Cam, where we were talking about getting our shit together. Well, I've just realized that. Uh, getting closer to that microphone. I've just realized that your chair up. We have to. Um, we have to focus on what we really want to say mm-hmm. instead of just making projects that like about the thing that we care about that week. Mm-hmm. So like, like I was talking to you earlier, like uh, that um, I want to have the, the, the feeling that like I'm squeezing someone else's brain like a sponge and it's creating this like weird sparkling salute. Mm-hmm. Right. So I want that in my work because like I, I want to experience that when I'm looking at something or like reading something or listening to something. So I want my work to create the same kind of feeling in other people. Mm-hmm. Or at least in me, honestly. Like if I remember that I worked on it and this is what I feel, that's fine. I don't even care if other people feel yeah. the same way. Because there's bound to be one other person like me that looks at it and does the same, like feels the same way. So I figured that I need to establish certain themes yeah. that are going to be just present with whatever I do. So mm-hmm. that I don't get distracted and do like just like random jokes or random characters or random stories. I think everything has to be about essentially like an undercurrent personality thing that's just applicable to me that I want to express. Yeah, totally. And uh, the Jesus year is like I was saying that we have to accomplish something this year because <laughs> otherwise that's it. We're, yeah. Crucified. Well, no, we're just professionals, which is also fine. This is probably what's going to happen. Yeah, we're just gonna be professionals working what we can do and what we've learned during our time being professionals, right? Mm-hmm. And then we join the professional religion, yeah. which has its matriarch is uh, Wooly Loman or something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, uh, it's going okay. I finished the pilot that I was making, so that was okay. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm finishing the other cartoon that I was making. I think that we need. You know, following up on the themes that we just discussed, I think that we need to found a new religion based around the pursuit of these brain sparks and trying to initiate the brain sparks in others. And this will be the the binding philosophy to all of the stuff that we make. Because I really feel like starting up, um, having these conversations with my friends the last year has subconsciously been about that. Like, I've been finding that, like, I get more stimulation and am able to produce things that give those kind of spark moments to other people more so by talking than I am by making music video stuff or making... Well, that's actually, that's not good, right? Mm. Because everyone can talk, but can you... Like the idea of like art or really any kind of communicative uh, form of, you know, expression is that you have... It's a form of telepathy, right? It's just not an efficient form of telepathy. You can't really project your thought into their brains but you can kind of approximate it, right? right. So like I'm thinking something and I'm feeling something and I want you to do the same thing, right? right? I want you to feel and exactly I, the same it's, way. It's perfectly appropriate. You can waggle your meat, meat sounds at somebody and transfer an idea that way. Yes. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, we've, we, we know how to do certain things well because we studied to do, how to do that, right? We practiced. We know we are professionals at like I'm like I'm a 
professional like animator or illustrator or whatever. You've been a professional talker for longer than you've been. Uh, <laughs> everyone has been. This isn't <laughs> like then you should have been doing, you know, uh, uh, like standing and talking like, I don't know, Spalding Gray or one of those idiots <laughs> in front of people and trying to pretend that, you you know, you, you can deeply connect to them just based on your words. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's not good. It's always, that's like... Those kind of people, like, I, I really don't like them because they remind me of the worst parts of myself. Mm-hmm. Like Woody Allen, whenever I, like, I hear him, like, doing those cringy monologues, I just, like, oh, my God, I hope I'm never like that. <laughs> and I can catch myself being like that, and it's embarrassing. Yeah. I don't ever want anyone to witness me like that. What do you, what do you think is embarrassing about it? Do you think that it's too personal? Do you think it's too weak? Does it feel weak to you? Like, All of it, these what? things. It's weak. It's personal. It's like it's wimpy, right? Mm-hmm. Like a re- like I like I don't know. I don't know about you, but I want to be a real man, <laughs> and that's uh, that's not about being strong or exercising, yeah. but it's about a sense of duty mm-hmm. and a sense of responsibility, right? Yeah. So you take care of your woman, you provide like for yourself and whoever you care about. You like generous with your friends. You know how to uh, do certain things, and you know you, you can overcome embarrassment and do certain things that you have to do. You can Basically, carve a spear, doing you can like roast a squirrel. Well, those are no, those, those are those are physical feats, right? I'm talking yeah. about uh, like a sense of responsibility, right? Yeah. So um, you can deal with the world and not be afraid. Mm-hmm. That's really what it's about, right? So I feel like when I'm listening to Woody Allen, he's the opposite of it, like a man. Right. He he's the anti man. Yeah. And, and and I'm not saying like and it's not like a misogynistic thing, like he's a woman because like mm-hmm. and like I, I understand you mean that he's like, an anti man in that he doesn't have responsibility. He doesn't have self respect. Right. Like I, I, I like and I don't have any respect for him when he's bitching about his uh, miserable life, right? So it's just sad. I totally yeah, I totally get that. There's a there's a couple of characters on this American life that drive me crazy because they do the same thing. They've got that weird they talk about their feelings and stuff and like it's okay to talk about how you feel but don't be like a like a you know it's just about it it's just a sandwich man you don't have to have a fucking existential crisis because they got the the bacon wrong you know like (laughs) it's 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 a way to be yeah it's just so wimpy Mm -hmm. right dignity and and it's not and you know what you you can probably um you know, if you ended up having a daughter or whatever, you can extend that to, to women too. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a virtue in like humans. It's a human thing. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I'm saying like be a man. It's not really, that's misogynistic, right? Yeah. It's like be a person. Be a person. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a dignity that you expect from a, an adult person. Self, self-respect and project it onto others. Mm-hmm. Like, and part of it is not caring what they think about you, right? Like, I don't care if other people respect me as long as I respect myself. Right. And if I was doing, you know, one of those monologues, how I, like, don't respect myself, I wouldn't be able to respect myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, it's, yeah. It's, I think, yeah, it's self-respect and responsibility, and I feel like, you know, I should, I should be striving to accomplish that in all things. Mm-hmm. If, like, professionalism or relationships with people. It's the same thing. It's, I, I don't, I think that uh, I heard similar things. Uh, I was reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, and uh, he does a segment on the dog whisperer. You know that dude that, that, uh, does oh, yeah, the, the guy that, like, the does this, like, gesture and then people listen to him. Yeah, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell's going on about phrasing and stuff and how 
his body language, the Caesar guy, is, his body language is, is what's making the, the dogs respond to him. Mm-hmm. And it, I thought it was interesting because he was talking about like the body language of the alpha when it comes to dogs. He's like, the, the yappy, loud dogs are the ones that are insecure, they're needy, they're angry, they're uncertain about their environment, and so they end up being these little hell raisers that are constantly like nipping at other people in order to try and like get a, a foothold on like try to get some stability, trying to get some like safety. And the alpha dogs are the ones that kind of like see through the matrix a little bit. They're calm, they're quiet, and that kind of presence immediately makes the yappy dogs like fall in line like i had uh, a conversation with a friend <clears throat> at work at the design studio and uh he was he's a little younger than me he's like 22 and so he was uh and he's very honest about like asking for advice he's he's got that kind of funny personality where he'll ask you like really grandiose questions mm-hmm. just in passing mm-hmm. and uh i think it's fun like to, to to actually take those questions seriously and like actually pontificate on it. And one of, one of his questions was like, do you think I need to be more bitchy? Right. He's like a gay guy or whatever. And he was talking like one of his other gay friends was saying that he needs to be more of a diva. If he wants to get what he wants, he needs to be able to like, you know, be the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Like if you don't see something you don't like, you know, get up in somebody's face until they give you what you need. And I was, and I, I tried to like give him a little bit of pushback on that idea. That's weak. Like, yeah, listen, I mean, like, you can do that, and there is a lot of people who kind of brat their way into, like, being successful and stuff like that, but I'm with you in that, like, I associate a virtue with the alpha of being, like, the person who's got their stuff together, who's, like, very calm under fire, and I've always found that, like, if you can be the person that doesn't freak out in a crisis and is able to keep control of your temper, you'll get very, very far because the majority of people you'll run into in your regular life have not really progressed emotionally since high school. They, even though they're 65, they're still high school kids and they get upset about like personal slights and like, you know, somebody didn't say hello to them. So now they don't want to give them a raise or all these bratty, like interpersonal things that you should have gotten over in high school like yeah that's that's, that's weird like, it's, it's all it's all insecurity stuff or like or just not understanding how like people work not enough empathy maybe i don't know mm-hmm. like i i find that um it's true if you're uh, if you act angry like you deserve things you'll usually get them mm-hmm. but i find that kind of slimy like it's 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 it's, it's uh, it makes me feel bad if i do that like sometimes like I, it, there was a time that i was just like doing that when at work mm-hmm. and i would be like always complaining and stuff and then I realized that that's just making me feel gross. Right. Like I would, I would get what I want, but it, and the, the process didn't fill me with like happiness at all. It mm-hmm. made me just like not want to do it ever again. It's like you're taking, um, if you had like an emotional tally, like we talk about sometimes viewing life as being a role playing game. Yeah. Like if you imagine uh, two categories on your, your 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 stats yeah you can either invest some of your skill points into um charisma or confidence or whatever yeah. blank you can get a lot of things in life by putting a lot of charisma points into or a lot of bonus points into things like aggression um sneakiness deception and there'll be rewards 
for yeah. for cashing that in. Yeah. But you'll also become a person that you might not like. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a weird balance, right? Like there's a you're right and uh like if you have a limited amount of points, you also have like the skill set that you come with, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can't physically intimidate anyone if, <laughs> even if I tried, right? I can like my accent can get stronger and I'll become weirder. Mm-hmm. But there's certain like I can play to my strengths, right? I can be professional or I can be relaxed. I can make people at ease if I really want to or I can make people weirded out and then they'll run away <laughs> like they want want to talk to me, right? So like if you go with the Dungeons and Dragons analogy, everyone has like a profession, like somebody's a thief and somebody's like a wizard. Yeah. Right? And you have to figure out let like what what kind of a person you are and then you put the points into something that you're good at instead mm. of just like st- cuz like I could exercise all the time and I'll become one of these little 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 dudes with like lots of muscles, little tank. Yeah. <laughs> like what would that do for me, right? <laughs> Like, will I be projecting calm competence if I had, like, weird biceps? (laughs) What is that? You're in the middle of a meeting, and people just see the the forearm veins throbbing while you're talking. Yeah, it's just like, oh, he's he's getting angry, maybe. (laughs) These veins are pulsing. I can't, yeah, I can't do that. It's also, it's, it, the rewards aren't, like, the, the ceiling on that skill set for, like, a certain type of person are lower than, like, for, you know. Yeah, if you're six foot three, there'd like be if a you much get, bigger reward for going to the gym. Like, if you get robbed it. to exercise, he'll become a mountain man, right? Yeah, he'll he'll big bone Because, like, he was an Olympic swimmer at one point. Mm-hmm. So he can get it back. Yeah. If he, he really wanted to. He, he was born an athlete. He swam like eight hours a day and he would like think about philosophy underwater. Mm-hmm. And one day he decided that like thinking about philosophy above water is also great. So he just <laughs> stopped exercising. He beached himself. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's a rational choice, right? You've decided that investing all these points into this physical activity is not worth it. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah, you, 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 he went, uh, yeah, he... You know, how, like, you dual class, like, from rogue to wizard, and then yeah. you decide, like, you're level one rogue, but now you're level five wizard. Right. So you just, like, went into a different I had the exact same conversation at the end of high school, because I didn't know whether I wanted to go to university and be an architect, or whether I wanted to go to art school and do illustration or animation. Mm. And I had a talk with my guidance counselor, and he's like, grades are good enough to do either, so you need to just decide what you want more. Mm. And what it came down to was, like, when it if there's a divide between like going to the university stream and it's mostly going to be academic and there's a divide between going to art school and it's going to be mostly emotional and um, kind of like visual skills. um, I felt like I knew that, you know, just look at my work and interests and stuff and what I did when I didn't have to like be in school. Mm -hmm. It's like I had a, a natural talent for making images and doing artwork stuff. Right and taking like two unrelated ideas and well storytelling kind of right storytelling all of that kind of stuff visually right and everything else that I did was just stubbornly working really hard in order to get the grades and so I made a rational choice to say like I could do either but if you decide to put your hard work behind the thing that you already got a talent for you're probably going to do better at that than being the middling person who's struggling to keep up. But then again, some people are like, I I don't know, like I feel like I'm a little bit of a middling person in my profession, right? Mm -hmm. But I enjoy it a lot. 
Like, oh, I really too. like animating. I'm not, like, again, as I said, not that great at it. But I'm really, I really like the process. Like, yeah. I really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's like, it's the best thing ever, right? I can do stuff and do the thing that I like doing. Mm -hmm. So, and also, like, yeah, there's, there's ways you can apply your personality to things that you think that you're not you're not gonna be great at but you can like adjust it so you could be mm. great at it one great bonus is even if you find yourself working in kind of an artistic factory job like whether it's compositing or rotoscoping or doing animation yeah at least like once you're competent at your job you can get your hands moving in uh, a meditative way and still have another part of your brain open to like listening to lectures or listening to podcasts and you're kind of like you're getting paid to do one thing but you're also kind of in school it's a very surreal surreal type of deal and i wonder like if there's aspects of you know we imagine um the the dark cloud over foxconn and like building cell phones and slave labor oh, and all God. That kind of i wonder what that what that's like in reality like if those people on the lines in these factories were able to listen to podcasts or something, I think that I wouldn't mind that job. Like if I got really good mechanically putting together phones or whatever, I didn't have to think about it anymore. And I could just like listen to stuff all day and still get paid. I think that that yeah, wouldn't be that bad. I don't, I don't know if you can listen to stuff. It would be nice if you could. Yeah, they yeah. probably have like kind of a military. probably have like a guy with a whip. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I wonder if it, it could progress in that direction it wouldn't be such a bad oh, just replace them all with robots it doesn't really need to be there honestly putting, a, putting together cell phones doesn't require human hands <laughs> they could be doing other things oh that's true we yeah. just need to get the bots cheaper <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know like uh, I think uh, it's kind of progressing to the the basic income kind of society mm -hmm. where everybody's uh, just getting paid to exist mm-hmm and I've seen that a little bit in... Uh, in Douglas Rushkoff. Yeah. I've seen a little bit of that in England, how like, there's people living on benefits. Mm -hmm. They are having a horrible time because it's a terrible system. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they, their lives are garbage. We got uh, to eliminate this idea of fairness. Like, I mean, even people who are among, like, liberal... Associate with, like, being liberal in Canada... Mm -hmm. You bring up the idea of like welfare, and and they immediately spout off that idea that it's like, well, but you got to make sure that people aren't taking advantage of the system. It's like, what do you care? What do you care if somebody's cheating? Well, like it's a very small amount of money, and if anything, it should be like one of our grander goals in society to figure out a way to like have people not have to work. It's a if they don't want to, yeah, like they should be working on the stuff that they're passionate about and that they're interested. And if it, that that doesn't exist then just let them do nothing, like, whatever. It's, it's this just... moral hazard thing that everyone's afraid of. Whenever I hear the phrase moral hazard, I get weirded out. Mm -hmm. Because I don't understand what that means. What the hell is a more moral Like, it's it's bad that they're not working because that's bad? It's, a re it's recursive logic. Right. Right? It's just like, oh, well, you should be working hard for your upkeep because otherwise other people are paying for your life and you should be embarrassed by that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like that's But the the thing that it, the reason that that breaks down is that there's plenty of companies now that are mostly automated that you still have middle managers that are expected to come and sit in their office for 8 hours and do 2 hours of work while they're there. Everyone we like the it. idea that there's some virtue in showing up and I don't know why that has to be a legacy of Every producer's job in the TV industry is a job of a secretary, right? Mm -hmm. They make an Excel sheet Yes. And then they drag things onto the Excel sheet, yes. and then Excel makes uh, like calculations for and them. And they call around, they have to make two or yeah. three phone calls, pick the best price for where the location's going to be, yeah. 
and uh, like I mean there is there is skills in this right but honestly again could be replaced by a robot mm-hmm. it's it, it's weird and most of them don't like most of them don't really work all day, right? They just yeah. come in, they check their email, they send the email back. And, and you get a funny yeah. hierarchy thing, right? Like people associate middle management as being a, a position that gets paid more, but there's no reason why it needs to be that way. They should just get the same amount of money as everybody else. Like they have a different skill set, but... Well, they, no, okay, okay, there is a concept okay. of scarcity, right? So if... Uh, you oh, know. but fuck that. No, but like... There's, it, a, there's a scarce number of secretaries in the building. Well, but, that means they should be paid more, right? Because there's less people with those skills. Unless it's a skill that anyone can have, which is it, what I, I think. I believe it's a skill that everybody can have. It's just an administration Yes, thing. that it's, is true in this case, right? <laughs> that that means that that job is not paid fairly. They should be paid way, way less than everyone else because they're not working the whole day, right? But, uh, yeah, like, an, you know, that's not a crazy economic principle. If something's rare, they should be paid more because they have a real skills, rare skill set that's hard to well, acquire. Well, they can hold it hostage, right? They can say, like, well, I might not be able to do that for you. I've got other offers in town. That's fine as long as that's the truth, right? Mm. That's okay. That's how economics work. It's just, yeah. you know. I'm more talking about, like, say you, you were involved in, like, a mom-and-pop company. Yeah. Right? And everybody has their roles within the company. There's a person that, like, but they can cleans the garbage. Around. There's a person who makes phone calls to clients. There's a person who, like, builds products, designs things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, under, like, the... If you go back 100 years, there used to be, like, a pay disparity between, like, the owner of the company... And the lowest worker, that was like three to one, say. Like, you're the boss, so you make like kind of three times as much money as yeah, now the it's lowest like worker. 50, and now in like modern corporations, it's like, you know, 2,000, 3,000 times Yeah, that's, more a, than, that's unsustainable. That's not gonna, that's not, that's not going to work for a long time yeah. on a big pile of money. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's weird. I don't know. It's always It's always been like this, though. Like you're saying that those mom and pop shops existed but they didn't really it's always been like this there's always been like the king or the feudal lord or uh you know a factory owner that owned a million times more than everyone else underneath him yeah yeah yeah. there's always been disparity but i think that it's it's time that there's a more mature conversation that happens where it's like you can be put in a position where you're facilitating and managing an apartment, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you get any more money. It's just that that's a that's a, a different job than you had before, and you're not working any more hard, and it's no more important than your other job. Okay, you got to take get, it seriously. You're getting into economics, and economics are like they're legitimately complicated, right? Because mm-hmm. like how who de- who decides how much anyone gets paid, right? Does the market decide? Do you decide? Who do you appoint? Is it like the general secretary of the Communist Party or yeah. just like I, the guy that regulates how much everyone gets paid? I, I like, suspect that the reason that it breaks down goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how different people have different fear responses. And yeah. part about becoming like a, um, a virtuous adult person is that you get your fear response under control and you can start making decisions with a more methodical yeah. you, kind of pace. You, That's kind of what you're expecting from when you get a manager, right? Like yeah. you've seen all of these people that are rule followers and that are terrified at work and they're motivated by the idea that they have to do what they're told or they'll get fired. And you promote people who you feel like are mature enough that they can make decisions at a bit more of a calm, but rational n- level. Yeah, it never works out either. You just promote the tallest, most blonde person. <laughs> and it, 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 like, or, you know. Yeah, that's true too. It's just, yeah. It, it, humans are irrational. 
nothing ever works like that. The whole being an adult and like being a responsible man is really for yourself. Mm-hmm. No one else is going to care about that. And so you don't feel like <clears throat> recognizing that we have these biases and laying it down can't help. Like if you're if you have like somebody put together a spreadsheet of the three employees that you think you need to be promoted, you don't think you can analyze it again and go like well tom is okay but i think that you like him because he's tall and he's blonde you can't do that because that means you know there's do you want the universe to be one thing but it's you know it's the universe it doesn't care what you want right? right so if you start like rebelling against how the world is it's gonna end badly Mm-hmm. So you have to like the only thing you control is yourself and your own moods and your own responses to things yeah so i don't know i think the way to navigate like this kind of stuff is just figure out what works out best for you really mm-hmm. and like not don't be a douche to other people too much that's really you know there's nothing else you can do right if if, if somebody you know if somebody's really tall and like they get promoted that's fine it reminds me. I like this. This yeah. this is a good endpoint because it reminds me of the end of like Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Oh these, yeah, these spiritual <laughs> books always sum everything up in in the same way. They're like, try to be nice to everybody, find what you like, investigate in mysteries, and try not to be a douche. Well, yeah, try not to be a douche is a pretty good like standard of living. So, what are your what are your websites these days? What's your Twitter and shit? Uh, well, uh, there's specialpie.tumblr.com and mm-hmm. my. Twitter is uh, Ilya underscore J. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just got an Elo invite, so I'm going to use that. What? Yeah, that's right. Do you want an Elo? Yeah. Okay, you can have it. That's <laughs> Let right. Let the exodus begin. Oh, yeah. Fuck Facebook. Facebook's dead. That's it. <laughs> it like, it's, it's been... And it's like... Okay, Elo might be a pile of shit, too. Oh, it will be. Like it, yeah. It's just the platform. The thing that I like about it is this idea of sending a message to corp- the corporate world that these things don't have any inherent value. Oh, yeah. People so will move do- in mass right <laughs> so away. don't be giving Facebook $50 billion valuations. It's just a place that we're now. And as soon as we find some other place, fashion will take us to another area. Well, and we will and hollow our, out your Our servers. parents or our grandparents will stay on Facebook, so that's great. Where did our children go? I'm having emptiness syndrome part two. Oh, God. They left the Facebook nest. That's that, that Arthur C. Clarke book, Childhood's End. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to it? No. You should listen to it. It's really good. It's about, uh, you know, death of humanity and children growing up and stuff. Yeah. It's like the ultimate empty nest, right? Because humanity grows up and turns into a big pile of energy. Oh, so it's like the... the um the rapture of the nerds type of thing like you choose to become it's not the nerds it's just like they just evolve like their kids become like these weird uh like they grow up and they stop relating to adults Uh, like they become like they just communicate telepathically and you can't understand them anymore just wander naked and they occupy like a whole continent and and then they just like turn into energy and everyone dies yeah far out you should really listen to this and there's the adult people can't relate so they just have mortal lives yeah and they just like they're just sad and they don't know what's happening jesus they, they choose to die all right that's my homework assignment i'm gonna look into that yeah all right thank you yeah good night and thanks for all the sprats <laughs>